We're back, Marvel versus Marvel, the best podcast, Marvel history in context. It's your boys. It's a, you know, laid back yeah. kind of introduction to part two. This is the second part of our Daredevil TV show episode. I went, I went to say series then and realized international listeners, they say show and not series. They don't say the um, word program, Rob. They're better they than us. They don't say the word Teleprogram. Teleprogram. Uh, Daredevil Teleprogram. What's on tonight? Um, <laughs> in part one, man, we laid a table. We uh, really got into the production side of how this uh, TV series was put together by Marvel Television, by ABC Studios. We heard from um, some of the big players involved, including the person that wrote the first few episodes and then left to make Sinister Six. We all remember that great Spider-Man villain movie, the Sinister Six that they definitely made. Um, we also looked at the uh, the kind of the 1980s influence of this TV show and how... Frank Miller changed the game. Did that strike? Mm. T- did that strike resonance with you? Out, you know, what a, what a really seismic change and shift that is in the in the kind of the, the culture of comic books. It, it does. I mean, as I said, as I said before in the previous uh, one, I always had comics down as this kind of oh look, there's the hero and he's all nice and lovely, and then you read stuff by Alan Moore and Frank Miller, and it be it, you go oh hello, <laughs> this is spicy. Yeah. And it all starts, it all really starts with Frank Miller's Daredevil in the early 80s, which is, as we're going to find out, left an indelible mark on this series. The table has been set, we've um, heard from the amazing people and we've paid some bills. Give our big shout out to our uh, amazing supporters. Yes. Peter J, Brandon Schmigilski, Randall Schmidt, Zach Thomas, Bastabir, Sam, Bindi, Soupy. And who can forget... Big balls, Billy Brown, <laughs> <laughs> swaggering in with that incredible. You know, he decided I'm not going to come in at the three pound tier of support, the five pound, the ten pound. I'm going to come in at the one hundred pound tier of support. We salute you, Billy Brown. I mean, you can't get any better than that. Uh, Will. Oh. It's uh, it's time for us now to um, to execute that deep dive, to pull apart three episodes of um, the Daredevil series, um, and we've not done ones uh, in sequence, have we? No, um, no, no. We we've cherry picked. Well, just for you people, we've cherry picked the significant ones. We feel we need to really give special attention to. We didn't want to do the uh, the initial episodes and, and pay too much time to like the origins and the history, you know, of how Matt, Matt, Matt Murdock got the, the powers and things because we'd we already looked at that uh, that that side of the comic book side of things mm. in in the Daredevil movie. Um, so we picked out episode seven, which is the introduction of Stick and is in fact called Stick, um, which is one that really warrants us have, taking a look at. Um, we uh we we picked out um an episode um 10 um which is Nelson versus Murdoch um and then we picked out the final episode 13 entitled Daredevil the conclusion of the uh the series um so there's going to be some previously previously on and if you could do your best <laughs> previously on voice that would be very helpful um previously on I'll Daredevil. do my, I'll do my best Jack what? Bauer 
Yeah, I was going to say, was that? <laughs> I think that was the first. The first previously I can remember um, was twenty four. I was thinking about that show the other day, and man, I don't know whether I should go back and watch that or not because it's so long. And he's such a, looking back, quite a problematic person. But thrilling cop TV from what I remember. Absolutely thrilling. Sunday night, BBC mm. Two. Oh, my word. What are we seeing? Real time. Well, not real time in this country. Yeah. There's no adverts. It was 45 minutes. <laughs> it didn't add up to a full day for us. No. But yeah. Anyway, um, uh, take it away, Will. The show is sort of yours. Sort of. Previously on Daredevil. Pretty good. Was that Pretty good? good? Yeah, that's not bad. That's not bad. All you need to do now mm. is leap at a Christmas tree whilst drunk and collapse it in a hotel. What's that a reference to? It's just a, it's just a famous thing that Kiefer Sutherland did whilst whilst hammered in a hotel, and it was all captured <laughs> on camera. It's just he was so drunk at some sort of a, not even event, just I don't know what it's a, a cast party or something, and I just distinctly remember him just hurling himself at this big, you know, in, in posh hotels they have a really gorgeous Christmas tree. Yeah, he just hurled himself at it, and yeah, there we go. What a legend. Anyway, previously on Daredevil. Matt Murdock, at the age of nine, tried to save a man from being hit with a truck filled with hazardous waste. But in the process, a barrel exploded and landed in Matt's eyes, blinding him while simultaneously enhancing his remaining senses to superhuman levels. As and ad- creating the Ninja Turtles. And creating the Ninja Turtles. Previously Unbeknownst on- to him. Previously on Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> Anyway, as an adult, Matt Murdock carries out a double life. By day, Matt and his partner, Foggy Nelson, are hard-working lawyers in the impoverished New York region of Hell's Kitchen, helping the disaffected where they can. But at night, Matt dons a black mask and uses his incredible senses and fighting skills to save lives and punish the criminals of the city, earning himself the nickname, The Devil of Hell's Kitchen. Nelson and Murdoch, uh, Nelson Murdoch's first client, Karen Page, was framed for murder by the successful construction company Union Ally Construction, one of the many legitimate front businesses that hides a powerful criminal secret. Sorry, powerful criminal syndicate secretly run by Wilson Fisk. Fisk is a man who is also leading a double life. To the public, he is a respectable businessman. But behind closed doors, he is a brutal and terrifying psychopath who rules an entire empire of corrupt cops and alliances with organized crime families. Slowly but surely, Matt has been taking chunks out of Fisk's empire, bringing himself to the attention of some very powerful and dangerous people. So... In the comics, does Daredevil start out like this? No proper name or costume, just wearing a black bandana over his eyes and running about the place hitting people with a stick? Uh, no, originally, no, no. In in the in the 60s, no. He 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 just he begins just as uh, you know, full costume, and I'm Daredevil. The idea behind the name Daredevil mm. is that it was the uh, the name that the 1960s bullies used to use to taunt him with, because uh... Matt was a bookworm. Um, he was uh, he was really his his father banned him from doing anything exciting, playing any sports, nothing like that. Uh, Matt, I don't want you to be a a dumb palooge like your old man. <laughs> You're gonna get out there and hit them books. You stay up in that bedroom, Eddie. You hit them books. You'll be a real good lawyer one day. Uh, and so all the other kids would call Matt. Oh, you're a regular daredevil, aren't you? Up there reading books all day. 
And so Matt, when he became a uh, costume adventurer, decided upon the name Daredevil because now, with his skills, he could, you know, leap from building to building. Uh, but then in 1993, mm. Marvel brought Frank Miller back to, to Daredevil. Um, after the success of like Dark Knight Returns and Batman Year One and stuff, Frank hadn't written Daredevil in in about a, well not quite a decade but quite a long time. His Daredevil run ended in the mid eighties, nineteen ninety three. He's back to essentially solidify the new backstory of Matt Murdock mm. that Frank Miller had in, hinted at and introduced in 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 flashbacks and dialogue and stuff in his in his eighties run. Because when Frank comes on board in the 80s, he just plays fast and loose with the idea of connected continuity. <laughs> like, it doesn't matter what previously happened in Matt Murdock's life. Frank Miller's here, and he's going to change stuff. Um, so there's a series in 93 called um, Man Without Fear, mm. which is often the tagline used for Daredevil. Um, you know, Daredevil, the man without fear, is kind of the unofficial subheading of the comic. Mm. Um, originally in the 60s, Stan Lee had the idea that if you're blind, you can't be afraid of anything. Ah. Like, you'd be on a on, you know, high up on a building, leaping from building to building, whatever, and you're not scared. You can't Sp- see the guns pointed at you. Spider-Man isn't as brave as those damn blindies. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's, that was Stanley's idea. Um, <laughs> Blindies is a brilliant, a brilliant slur for the for the visually disabled. That's great. I, I bet that's not a real one. They I, use. I I might have heard it somewhere, and if I have offended someone, uh, I'm very sorry. Fine. It was meant. Um, it was meant as a spoof of what something like Stanley would say. I think everyone. I think everyone knows you're, you're fine. Thank um, you. So, Man Without Fear was this kind of essentially Daredevil Year One, mm. um, done by the guy that wrote Batman Year One, the the first Year One, the Year One Year One, if you will. Um, <laughs> and Man Without Fear takes a lot of the beats and mentions and flashbacks that Miller had peppered the 80s series with all those kind of flashbacks to Matt's history and turns it into a full story Mm. this is when he was a kid through the accident um how he got his powers how he got trained um how he how he how he first bought a costume and stuff like that and in this story Matt does wear this makeshift costume that he hobbles together Mm. from things left behind in the old um boxing gym where his dad used to train um and that that costume, that outfit, that whatever you want to call it, disguise, that looks very, very, very similar to what he wears in throughout series one. Um, kind of this black sweatshirt, sweatpants, a black bandana covering the top half of his face, um, and a police baton, um, which he steals as a young boy and hides, um, just because he 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 in 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 Miller's Man Without Fear, it recasts young Matt Murdock as a tearaway. Um, rather than a bookworm, um, he's a uh, he is a, a real tearaway. He's always like um, setting off the you know opening up the fire hydrant so it sprayed water yeah. for the kids to play in, and you know pinching apples from the corner greengrocer store. Urban scrumping, um, urban scrumping, urban scrumping indeed. <laughs> and a, a cop comes to tell him off, and Matt grabs grabs his nightstick and runs off and no one uh. catches him. So he doesn't have any kind of name or, or identity or costume in this Man Without Fear series. It's just kind of a nondescript set of clothes he can wear and it looks very similar to this. One question uh, that's been I've been sitting on in, in my hot seat, if you will, that I have not uh, put out with a fire extinguisher. Uh, when you say that Daredevil was a swashbuckler, did he rob? Did he have those weird pirate boots that everybody wore? 
No, he did not. No. Oh, oh well, that doesn't make any sense. If you can have a swashbuckler, they've got the pirate boots that superheroes inexplicably wear in Marvel comics. It was more that he just he he. Like, you, you might have also be able to describe um, Spider Man as a swashbuckler. Really, yeah, it's does. that swinging down on, on the kind of a rope and and all that kind of stuff. But Daredevil's always been a, a more. He's not awkward like spider-man he's always been kind of dashing and kind of almost a romantic figure as well mm. he gets laid loads yeah so that's probably part of it i don't want i can't be bothered to do the bleeping but he's a major something boy isn't he yeah 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 he really is <laughs> he's an he's an f boy for sure f boy yeah. there we go i love it i found a way of saying it anyway did you? Did you find a way of saying it? Yeah, I take credit for everything you say. Uh, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> anyway, we begin with our first episode. Season 1, Episode 7, Stick. In an office building, a Japanese executive races to an elevator, sorry, races an elevator downstairs to his office and waits for whoever is inside the lift with a loaded magnum. Firing a barrage of shots, the executive is surprised to see no one inside the lift, and the very next second has a sword held against his throat, with the sword wielder asking him, where is the black sky in Japanese, before cutting off the executive's hand and repeating his question. Rapidly losing blood, the executive tells the mysterious swordsman, that the black sky has been loaded on a ship before the, before the swordsman, revealed to be blind, decapitates him. God, I love the theme tune to this show. Very dramatic, mm. very gritty, great opening titles too, just red with shapes of New York foaming out like it, foaming out like it's its sonar vision. Because I was watching this and thinking, why is it doing it like this? And I realise it's like sonar. It's mm. like that kind of, uh, if you ever see something be an image generated through sonar, you don't see the whole thing. It's like it washes over it. And yeah, so you see like, like waves, you're washing over. So I finally got why they did that in that style, and it works. Uh, Jeff Loeb uh, said about the opening titles, We had a lot of conversations about title sequences and how best to deliver on them. One of the ones we, agree, we all agreed had struck us as far as imagination delivering on, on what the show was about was True Detective and how elastic was the company that did the titles for that. They came in and showed us that and a couple of other things they had done, and we were impressed. But it was this singular image of this dark red liquid covering something as if paint were covering something invisible and revealing it. True Detective, of course, had a very, very good opening uh, theme, if you remember. Yeah. Mm, yeah, definitely. Uh, up, up there with one of the best TV theme tunes ever, mainly the first season, I mean. Anyway, we continue with the story. At the offices of Nelson and Murdoch, Foggy airs his displeasure of the Devil of Hell's Kitchen to Karen Page and Matt Murdoch after previous episode's incident with the police, claiming that Daredevil is a terrorist. Karen leaves the office, soon followed by Foggy, leaving Matt to continue looking into paperwork on Leland Owsley, the accountant for Wilson Fisk's operations. So, as we mentioned before uh, in the letters section, or sorry, as everyone else has mentioned before, not me, I'm not taking credit for them, uh, the dynamic between the three between these three characters is really good. It's quite laid back, it's comfortable, you do believe that they're friends. It's brilliant. Yeah. I remember there being some real criticism of the actor that plays Foggy Nelson at the time, and I was, maybe it was the character they didn't like, I was... Uh, astonished by any criticism he is the beating heart of this show mm. like it all falls apart without without foggy he's brilliant um i love the character um and 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 
Karen Page, and I've, I forgot the actor's name that plays Karen now. Um, I've got both of their names, to be fair. Something Wall, is it? Anyway, but, um, Deborah, Deborah Wall. Um, she's brilliant. It's, it's just, it's, it's really great, yeah. It's, it's, I think the criticism about the guy playing Foggy is, I think he seems too much like a normal person, which is kind of like, when you think actor, you think actor, and you know when actors feel like they're a normal person, not an actor, somehow that jars with you. It's a weird thing that happens every now and again. I think that's subconsciously where people are coming from, because I noticed that. Hmm. He, he, he seems, he seems very, what, very he looks like a normal person? No, he, he talks, he behaves like a normal person. Because actors have this sort of layer about them, like every, like I've been what, listening to this Wire podcast, and they're talking about how some characters in the Wire are played by actual people rather than actors, and and you can tell them apart from the actual from the actual actors from the way they react, then they feel more more real. He just feels like a more real person. Hmm. That's how I came to it. Anyway, back to their dynamic. Is it like this in the comics? Do they have this sort of friendly threesome dynamic? Oh, in the original stories, it is a classic Stanley love triangle. There it is. Bloody um, just saw that coming. I bloody knew it. One of Stan's go-to story devices that we've talked about before is the love triangle, um, and giving the main character a disability within that love triangle, <laughs> so they can't pursue the girl that they're interested in. Yeah. Um, does it with Iron Man? It does it with Thor? Does it with Cyclops and with Daredevil, Matt Murdock as well? So Karen is like the beautiful. Dame, um, which means all the men in the story revolve around her and have this motivation of wanting to date her. So Foggy is in love with Karen. Karen is in love with Matt Murdock. Matt is in love with Karen. But I can never tell her so. Um, <laughs> in this very old 60s way of thinking in, in fiction or comics or whatever, the, the, the lead, and, and bear in mind, Stanley comes from a, a background writing romance comics in the, in the 50s and 60s um, where you, you always want to introduce uh, a barrier, an obstacle as to why your two characters can't get together until the last minute. Mm. So the, he, the lead character has an ailment and is consumed by it and always thinking to himself, I can never be with any woman. I cannot curse her to live with a tragic wreck like me is the general theme of Stan's writing. Um, so yeah, that's the, the dynamic. Matt, Matt also wants his buddy Foggy to be happy yeah. and kind of basically thinks if I can't have her, it should be Foggy. Oh. Um, Stan does exactly the same thing with Tony Stark. He's always pushing Pepper Potts onto Happy Hogan. He's an F boy with a heart of gold. He's not F boy at this stage. Oh, okay. That develops probably in the seventies. I like that. We're going to get um, an origin story on how he became an F boy. The F boy origin story. Um, <laughs> the uh, meanwhile, Foggy can see how much Karen is like infatuated with Matt. He's trying to date her, but she's totally oblivious to him, which is killing him inside. Um, and he's desperately jealous of his best friend. Um, Matt has always been the smarter and better looking one and always overshadowed him. So it's just three heartbroken people revolving their lives around each other and never getting what they want. Real soap opera. Ah, uh, yeah. Classically. In a car park, Owsley meets with Yakuza in regards to the mysterious swordsman that is terrorizing the gang. Shortly after the meeting, Owsley is cornered by a masked Murdoch who interrogates him about his involvement with Fisk. However, the clanking of a blind man's stick distracts Matt, giving Owsley enough time to taser the blind hero and escape. The blind man approaches Matt and asks, You just gonna lie there all night? 
As a child, Matt suffers from overwhelming senses around him during his time at an orphanage. The old blind man, Stick, was brought in by the nuns to help the ma- with Matt's suffering. Stick realises that Matt isn't getting worse, he's getting stronger. The two bond over their similar affliction, with Stick realising that there's something special about the Murdoch boy. Matt reveals that while being completely blind, his sense of hearing is superhuman to the point it makes up for his lack of eyesight. Spending his entire life blind, but with his other senses fully honed, Stick becomes Matt's mentor. I love uh, his relationship with Stick in this show. <coughs> Stick is such a hard ass, played very well by Scott Glenn. I haven't seen him in much. The only thing I, I, I really remember him was uh, Silence of the Lambs, and he was good in that. The scene where they sat together at the park bench talking was just brilliant. Yeah. I take it uh, Stick is a character from the original stories, or was he created for the show? He's created by by Frank Miller early uh-huh. on in his Daredevil run um, as this um, as this martial arts mentor instructor for 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 for, for Daredevil. We first meet uh, Stick when Matt he's been caught in this explosion and the resulting like devastating sonic waves of the explosion have broken Matt's radar abilities. So mm. he still has his heightened senses, but he's lost his. Um, ability to use sonar to navigate and it, that allows him to essentially see in 360 which is a insane thing to think about um so matt is looking for help and he just out of nowhere brings up for the very first time an old teacher of mine a mentor i've had and never mentioned and you've never seen in the comics um he's the only one that can help me now uh, and off he goes to track him down and and, and see if this guy can help um and when we meet stick he is this shabbily dressed old blind man. He looks homeless. Um, he's kind <laughs> yeah. of got this baseball cap on, and he's a, a hustler. In, he's a pool hustler in oh, an yeah. awful dive bar. Um, uh, he kind of cons people into betting that the blind man can't pot any balls in pool, and then he uses <laughs> his abilities to obliterate them in like two shots. I was about to say, you've got to move from bar to bar, because they're going to catch on to things pretty quick. Well, and then when they try to uh, get mm. their money back, he beats the crap out of them using a pool cue, otherwise known as a stick. Capitalism um, at its best. The, the very cool thing about stick that I always loved as a kid, mm. and it's kind of what I also love um, in my fantasy as well, mm. is that it stick so what what frank miller's kind of doing with stick is taking this traditional old man martial arts yes figure from like a 70s movie mm. and and spun it into something contemporary and urban so stick looks like a down on his luck guy from a dodgy bar he looks like the crazy homeless man that you'd walk past on the street as he's yelling outlandish stories that no one believes but he's actually, all those stories are true and real, and he's got this secret thing. So I really like that, the, the, the idea that something that looks very familiar and unremarkable and kind of grubby mm. could actually be the secret door behind which you find a hidden world of cool, badass stuff. Um, so I, I love that in my in any kind of magic and fantasy fiction. Um, I'm not really into high fantasy. Um, I love like like Hellblazer way more than Lord of the Rings. And Neil Gaiman's Neverwhere played a, a big a big kind of part in my in my uh, youth as well. So Stick kind of represents some of that to me, really. Yeah, I've heard I've heard good things about Neverwhere. I'll I'll, I'll give it a go because I've read my fair share of uh, Neil Gaiman. 
who is also from Portsmouth. In the present, Matt questions why Stick has returned to New York. The old blind man is here to save Matt and everyone in Hell's Kitchen from a horrible death. Meanwhile, Karen meets with Ben Urich from the New York Bulletin as they discuss uncovering the secret goings-on with Union Allied Construction, whom they believe has connections to the Yakuza. First, however, they will need evidence, especially when going after someone, sorry, after something so dangerous. Arriving back at Matt's apartment, Stick hassles his former mentee about surrounding himself in luxury and how it will be his downfall. After insulting Matt's father, the blind lawyer makes a move on Stick, bringing him back to his childhood when Stick taught him how to fight. After getting an emotional from taking a berating from Stick, Matt breaks down in tears, claiming, uh, blaming himself, in fact, for his father's death. But Stick, not wanting to waste his time, yells at him to get back up and try hitting him again, only to be restrained by his mentor. Back in the present, the dynamic between the two is still very much the same. They then discuss Matt's investigation into Fisk's activities and the war against organised crime. Stick needs Matt... Matt's help at destroying Black Sky, a weapon that the Yakuza, led by Nobu, are bringing to New York. After making Stick swear that he'll not kill anyone, Matt agrees to assist on his crusade. Very well done origin story. Uh, it, I mean, it's quite minimal, but it really does the job. We, re- you know, In just a few minutes, we get it. We totally get it. We're not over-egging it. Boom, done. And we've got the mm. dynamic set up. Also, I take it Stick plays this role in the comic books. Is this how Matt learns the abilities, or is he just there to improve on them, or what, what happens? Originally, no. Because as we said, in the 1960s, mm. it, it, Matt can just uh, immediately do stuff. Um, <laughs> He's a fully formed den. He, He's not he, born he, knows, he knows how to fight uh, because he spent years watching his dad box, and apparently that just means you can also box. We all know that. Watch something and you can immediately do it. Um, you can become a black belt when, by watching enough YouTube videos. Yeah, and when <laughs> he loses his sight and gains his powers, he's just great at things. Mm. It's real, like, wish fulfillment for kids. Yeah. And I remember, I had a weird childhood where I read 1980s comics and 1960s comics whilst I was a child. Mm. So I read the 60s stuff as a kid, as a young, you know, as a child. And I remember really feeling that wish fulfillment thing i remember feeling god this is so good i wish this would happen to me one day wouldn't Mm. it be good if it could happen one day you just discover you can do like the first time matt tries to throw a punch at a punching bag yeah he 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 hits it so hard it breaks off the thing it's on and he's like (laughs) wow i guess i'm strong um and and you know yeah but then we um we get hints of this of this in the Daredevil, in, in Frank Miller's run on the Daredevil comic book series, but then it's the Man Without Fear 1993 miniseries that, that introduces a new origin for um for 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 Matt and kind of solidifies what's been talked about. So it, it happens before Matt's dad is dead in the comics. Sometimes, sometime after he gets released from the Matt gets released from the from the hospital and his eyes are kind of um. Uh, 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 badly injured, and he's got these new this this thing he doesn't understand. He's he's found by Stick, mm. um, and it is Stick who who teaches Matt how to control his newly heightened senses and guides him into mastering this this so called radar sense, 
which Stick also possesses. Mm. Stick claims that every human has the potential to access this. This it's just the foot. It's just fully mastering all your senses. Yeah. And Stick like calls his a proximity sense. Matt calls his a radar sense. Mm. And Stick basically, you looked into getting this as a byproduct of this accident. Mm. I had to train for an exceptionally long time yeah. to get this. Um, and so Matt goes from being a little kid who needs, you know, a cane to walk to not walk into walls, to literally being a daredevil, to going out every night with sticks, scaling fire escapes, running across the rooftops in Hell's Kitchen, leaping from building to building, and it's. Gorgeous artwork by John Romita Jr. Um, and it is... I I always felt quite emotional reading this, this story. I read it as an older person, I think. Um, not as old as I am now, but I read it in my 20s or whatever. The portrayal of this really vulnerable, hurt young boy that Matt Murdock is, um, is quite, quite, hits you quite well. And then there's this bit where... He's just smiling again. He's joyful. And as he leaps from building to building, mm. and he's like, it's the only time I felt free and stuff. And so Stick also trains Matt in, you know, how to master, how to defend himself, protect himself, how to master multiple methods of hand to hand combat and use kind of a bow stuff and batons and all that kind of stuff. He kind of like is able to segue um, from teaching Matt how to get around as a blind person with these extra and mass these extra abilities into essentially almost without Matt's knowledge, <laughs> he's teaching him how to be a ninja. Amazing. At a client's apartment, Karen questions them about a possible connection with Union Ally Construction and the people that repaired the client's flat. The client reveals descriptions of two men that visited given Karen a lead. On the street outside, Karen is accosted and threatened by the two men the client described, but before they can do any harm, Foggy knocks them out with a baseball bat. Meanwhile, at the docks, Stick and Matt stake out the Yakuza, identifying Nobu and his men. Murdoch moves in, taking Nobu's men out silently as a shipping container opens in front of Nobu containing a young boy in chains. As Nobu's men lead the boy off, Stick readies to fire an arrow at the child, but Matt blocks the shot at the last minute, alerting Nobu's men, allowing the Yakuza leader to escape. Remembering his training with Stick, Matt recalls how his mentor told him to control his feelings. As a symbol of friendship, Matt presents Stick with a homemade gift, but the blind mentor destroys the gift and announces that his training is over. Ah, Stick! The emotionally abusive father we never had. Uh, <laughs> is, is he this? It's, whole... heart, it's kind of heartbreaking when he breaks that thing. It's it's awful. I tell I tell you, I I am enjoying this a lot more on the second go. I'm I'm enjoying it so much, and because I think I think when I was watching this the first time. I, I, although I did enjoy the drama bits, I was there going, I was there like, uh, when are they gonna get to the fight? And then I, I now watch oh, the second right. time. I'm now uh, enjoying these moments way more. Yeah, uh, the, these little bits of drama. Yeah, when that happened, I was like, oh, that's awful, you awful man. So is is, <laughs> is he this bad in the comics? 
Yeah, yeah. So when we first meet meet Stick, he's just always insulting Matt and hitting him with his stick, and he just calls Matt a punk constantly. Yeah, punk. constantly. He doesn't call him Matt. He's just like you, punk. Come on, you <laughs> punk. Get out of here, you punk. Hitting him, beating him with his the stick. Not that way, you punk. You idiot. Yeah. Um, and we see the Man Without Fear uh, series. We see his first, like the first time Matt meets him. It's this. Matt is in this world now where he gets nothing but pity mm. from everybody. All the kids around, like Matt was a tearaway Royster Doyster. He was a little, it was a little dude. He was a little, hey, little tearaway. And now, after this accident and everything, he's getting nothing but. He, he's struggling to find his way around in in the world, and he's getting nothing but sadness and pity from children and adults, and it's making him sick. And then he meets this this guy who's been following him for ages and it's stick and he's introduced as saying he has no pity for this blind little boy who's been in a terrible accident (laughs) it says there is no pity within stick's heart there is no mercy there is only cold clear purpose he finds this is not an accident this is not done out the goodness of his heart he's he hasn't he wants something from matt he needs something from Matt. And and this is a mission for Stick. It's not, I'm a good guy and you're blind, I'll help you. And so, yeah, it is, it is this thing of there is no mercy within him. Mm. Um, and he is portrayed as when every time Matt does something, like to begin with, the way he gets Matt to listen to him and try to defend himself and do something is he just starts hitting Matt. <laughs> And Matt is blind and has no way of defending yeah. himself. And he hits him until Matt twigs that he can kind of sense mm. something moving towards him. Um, and that's how he starts the whole... So, yeah, he's always berating him for losing control of his emotions mm. and not being focused. But he's not... Unlike in this series, he's not presented as a surrogate father figure mm. in the comics. Um, it isn't like that. There's n- I wonder whether mainly that he does meet him while he also has his dad is still alive, so that might be part of it. Um, Matt, as an adult, extends a huge amount of respect and some af- some affection towards Stick, but Stick does return none of that. He he is cold. And he has no mercy. He is merciless, and he does abandon Matt with no explanation or conversation. He literally goes. This kid is too emotional. I've made a mistake. He's not worth my training and leaves. So, um, yeah, that is sticks. That is, is very, very close to personality. Very good. What about Nobu? Is he is he is he someone from the Daredevil stories, or did they just go? We need a, a Yakuza guy. Give me the first name you can think of. Done. Oh uh, well, as we as we find out in this series, in this, this TV series, mm. that uh, Nobu is is working for or leading the hand mm. not necessarily the yakuza um uh is he in the comics i i i'd say not really no but he does resemble so the hand is is said to be have been founded you know hundreds of years ago by a man called uh keiji nabu yosh uh yoshi yoshioka Mm. Keiji Nobu Yoshioka. And this guy's name in the series is Nobu Yoshioka. Ah, there we go. So there's a similarity there, but we're talking about a character that is from hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Um, mm. 
Although in this Daredevil series, it explicitly says Nobu has lived multiple lives. Oh, that rings a bell. Again, I'm going to have to go back and watch it because I remember when it got into that whole supernatural element. Mm. Mm. Which is the foundation of kind of ninja in in, in, in pop culture and, yeah. and lore and stuff. Absolutely. Um, there's, a, there's a very interesting, if you want to look into the history of, of ninjas, who were a real thing. Yeah, totally. Who were. were a very real kind of SAS, the mm. SAS of the peasant army. Yeah. Um, and then they stopped... And then there's this revival of them in um, Japanese um, fiction and stories. Mm. And when they're revived, it's all, and they were invisible. <laughs> and they could disappear. <laughs> and they could do this. And they couldn't be killed. Um, and that's the stuff that then influences uh, fiction from that point on. Yeah. Um, the mysticism of, of ninjutsu. Do you know uh, where the, the black clothing comes from? Theatre. Because it made them hide against the black backdrop of a theatre. That's that. that ah. it, they, they didn't actually wear black clothing. They would actually, I think, they, they either wore grey or they were in disguise because they were oh, all about the disguise, about the hiding and everything. Um, that's very interesting. Well, well done. Uh, Nobu also, for me, he made me think of a character called uh, Kiriji. Mm. Um, he bears this kind of resemblance to one of the earliest hand ninjas that we meet in Daredevil, right when mm. they're kind of first introduced alongside Elektra. Um, Kiriji, it, it, the way he dresses, the way that he doesn't die, but it looks like he dies, keeps coming back, um, kind of like this this Terminator ninja. Mm. Um, and the way he's... And the the scene where he's on fire in this series it all reminds me of Kirigi. Mm. Kirigi's a very cool character. Um, um, I don't know if he was always intended to be quite like this, but when in one of the early Miller's early Daredevil issues with Elektra and, and Kirigi, um, it opens with I don't know if he's named in the previous. I don't I don't think he stands out. I think it's just like in the previous issue, Elektra and Daredevil have fought a bunch of ninjas, a mm. bunch of the Hand. They've dispatched them all. And they move on. In the next issue, it opens with this scene of devastation of this fight and all the bodies of the hand lying around. And then one of them just starts to get up and moving around. And he's got this katana right through his gut. <sighs> and the internal monologue tells us all, this is a guy called Kiriji. Mm. And it's all the legend of Kiriji. He is like the... he is. Um, all his brothers in the hand know him as the, the the best warrior, the greatest warrior. He has this um, this reputation as being unkillable and immortal. And he's this is all being said as Kiriji is wobbling down the street with a katana in his gut, and he wob you know, and as he staggers around and he's like, and he must live up to this reputation. He must not fall now. He must not die. Um, and he keeps coming back multiple times in, in throughout the story. It's, it's pretty cool. So yeah, he, he has he has like he he has, seems to have uh, similarities to or connections to those two, but mm. I don't think he's a. He's like meant to be either one of them. This is like a yet another example of, hey, there's this character in this new film, but it, 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 it's only vaguely related to a character yeah. that appeared once in one comic and then never yeah. came back again. Like Iron Man 3 had a, had a bit of that. Anyway. Cold, what was his name? Cold Heart or? Uh, can't be bothered. Something. I can't be, I, I can't be bothered to even remember. Cause mm, okay. Okay. Oh, sorry, I came off really dismissive. A little weird, yeah. Little I weird. can't be bothered to even remember. Oh, okay. I cannot even begin to fathom to remember. No, no, I just, no, so minor. 
In the present at Matt's home, Murdoch lays into Stick about going back on his promise of not killing anyone. But Stick tells Matt that the child was the weapon and that Matt has gone soft. Stick then admits that before he came to Matt's home, he caught up to Black Sky and stuck an arrow through the child's heart. Consumed with rage, Matt lashes out at Stick and the two fight, tearing up some of the apartment. As Stick lays on the floor beaten, Matt tosses his old men to his bag before telling him to get out of his city. Quite a shocking reveal, that, that he just killed a child. I know the child was the <laughs> weapon and all this, but it's just like... I don't care how many people this child would end up killing. You killed a child, mate. We, you know, it's not something you do lightly and off screen. I mean, I fully expected it as soon as I knew uh, Stick was in the city and there was, you know, I, I just fully knew. Gotta, gotta get rid of that kid. Uh, yeah. and Stick, Stick's a. Br- and this is what you see there is the, the reason why Daredevil is not. is not who Stick is looking for. Right, okay, so it's like an ulterior motive, and he's like, hey, while I'm in the neighbourhood, I know a fella who might be able to help me. What, what do you mean, sorry? Well, because you're, you're implying that Stick's just there to get the Black Sun. That's his... Yeah, Black Sky. Black Sky, sorry, Black Sky. Uh, yeah, Stick didn't come to help Matt Murdock. <laughs> no, 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 of course. Yeah. Yeah. That's, okay, that's that then. At Ben Urich's office, Karen brings along Foggy to meet Ben and discuss their investigation. Ben and Karen tell Foggy of the details and how they are looking for the King of Diamonds, who runs the crime rings of Hell's Kitchen. Ben and Karen also... Yeah, so just to explain that, because out of context it's a little odd, but they're not actually looking for someone called the King King of Diamonds. They were using playing cards to denote the levels Mm. of different... the hierarchy of the of the people and the one at the very top they use the card Mm. the king of diamonds they're not looking for a character called the king of diamonds unsurprisingly if i remember this right this was used in real life but this was used uh, in the second gulf war uh with saddam's generals and stuff they the playing cards cards, they 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 later did this as a direct reference this in the video game mercenaries playground of destruction where you go to north korea Playground of Destruction. The whole idea was that it was an open world game and you could blow up buildings and stuff. It was a lot of fun. A lot of fun. But wow. uh, yeah, it, they, I, you can't get it on PC anymore and it's only on like PS2 or whatever. Mm. It's one of those forgotten games of old. Anyway. Ben and Karen also make clear that they believe the Devil of Hell's Kitchen is likely working against Fisk. At Matt's flat... Murdoch is emotional when he discovers Stick left the gift his mentee made him when he was a child. At a mysterious location, Stick reports to a heavily scarred man that Black Sky is dead and has no idea if Matt will be ready when the door is open. Just going to say it again, I forgot how brilliant the show is. That is, I mean, when I think back to it, I always think like, oh, the episodes were a bit long or all that this, but no, that was solid. That was an absolute solid episode right there. Yeah. Bloody loved it. I think it helps kind of actually watching some of these episodes in isolation as well. Yeah. To go, oh, that's a, that's just a beginning, middle end. That's just a, it's a really, but then also how like that's teeing up something that will be yeah. paid off in the Defenders series. Mm. 
years later. I think it's because when you binge, you have this sort of, oh, I'm interested, and your interest wanes because you might want to watch something else. Or maybe it is for me. Mm. Sometimes my interest wanes. Anyway, so Stick, obviously we've got this heavily scarred man. What is this supposed to be? Is he working with? Is there anything like this in the comics? Yeah, later in in, uh, Miller's Daredevil run, we learn that Stick is just one member of an order of, like, badass warrior monks Mm. called the Chaste. Uh, C-H-A-S-T-E mm. um, And they are dedicated to opposing the Hand Who we learn are a demon-worshipping Like death cult of ninjas <laughs> um, They they worship something they refer to as the Beast um, And all their actions are To gain money, power and influence To kind of serve mm. this kind of evil religion They've, they've built around themselves and the Beast Um and we get some climactic battles between the chaste and the, the hand as Stick kind of draws Daredevil and Electra um, into into things because we also we we learn that you know Electra is caught between the two. So Matt is like the is is meant to be the the great pupil and student of the chaste. Whilst Electra is the great pupil and student of the Hand, so that's that's what this is meant to to, to be in, in the Daredevil run. The mm. Miller's Daredevil run is kind of build up. Um, as Electra was cast out of the chase by Stick for uh, for being too having too much fun murdering people, um, <laughs> and and then we meet meet other members of the chase, and they have these these single names like Claw. And stone and shaft, um, <laughs> and they're all masters of martial arts mm. uh, with some near mystic abilities. They manipulate chi and life force yeah. energies and all these other things that are associated with kind of ninja fiction. Um, and yes, the hand and the chaste are locked into an eternal war, and it's kind of been like that for hundreds of years. There's a lot. Of rubbish out there in the podcast world. <laughs> a lot of rubbish out there in uh, Marvel podcasts, Marvel YouTube shows, Marvel articles, the top 10 things you never knew about. That's not us, baby. That's not Rob and Will. That's not MVM. That's not Marvel versus Marvel. We're here to bring you all the good shizzle, the good context, the full context, the full history, the deep dives, everything you need. We bring it to you each and every, well, not week, but every couple of weeks. We give you what you need to know about Marvel. We fully armed you for Kang's appearance at the cinemas with our Kang trilogy. We're heading back and charting the uh, the amazing um, birth of the MCU with Iron Man remastered. We're giving you all this on Daredevil right now and how 1980s Daredevil changed comic books forever. And right now, you're not giving back. You're not doing the right thing and making this a reciprocal relationship, a two-way street. Can't all be give, give, give and take, 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 baby. It's got to be two-way, a circle, a great motion going on. For people out there that support this podcast, and that's the only way we get to go. The only way we're still here is because of the people that support us. We don't bring you these uh, adverts for mattresses, adverts for boner pills. We don't bring you... Adverts and intrusive adverts that uh, get in the way and interrupt what you're up to we only exist because of the support we get on patreon.com slash marvel versus marvel. This podcast requires a lot of work. This isn't like we've both got friends who do comedy podcasts um, and 
you know, they just rock up and start chatting, <laughs> and then they, they, they'd stop recording after an hour and publish it. It's not what we're able to do. This podcast madness. The the hours and hours, the days of of research, of writing, investigation, the deep dive, you know, the recording. We, we're not just knocking something out that's half an hour long, twenty minutes long. We put all the work in for you guys. Um, and the support we get back is the only way we get the chance to do that. Uh, Patreon.com slash Marvel versus Marvel only exists because of the community that supports us on Patreon. And because of that community, we like to uh, give back on Patreon by putting out amazing bonus episodes. Mm. February, we released the Kang Dynasty, a story that we know is in some way influencing the Avengers movie in 2025. Well, we're not waiting to 2025. We did it in February. We pushed it out. Our full-length bonus episode over two hours of deep diving the Kang Dynasty. That's up and in there, along with Maximum Carnage, um, along with the life history of Wolverine, um, along with a, a, a bonus episode all about um, Daredevil's secret identities and the rise and fall they're in. Um, you know, along with we, uh, Onslaught, the X Men versus mm. the Avengers. It's all there. Secret Wars is there. It's all there. We also push out an incredible, uh, great fun bonus, mini bonus show every month called Obscure Marvel, where me and Will explore the most ridiculous corners of the Marvel Universe. You can support us for just the price of a cup of coffee every month. That's all it would take. <laughs> yep. uh, the, the price of a pint, even. Actually, it's cheaper than a pint in most places. Three pounds is how you can start to cleanse your soul. Just three pounds. Finds its way into Oz coffers, means that we can keep the lights on around here and pay for all the things that need paying for, supports the show, and then you can go up through the tiers and get yourself early access bonus, full-length bonus episodes, all the bells and whistles. And if you do pay for the bells and whistles, you can get access to over 30 full-length bonus episodes, um, over 29 mini-shows, early access to every main episode we do, three days before the rest of the world. It's all available at patreon.com slash marvel versus marvel. patreon.com slash marvel versus marvel. Be part of the community. Give back. Do the right thing. And uh, speaking of um, doing the right thing, you guys can come and meet us in person. 25th of March at the Arena Theatre in Wolverhampton. We're looking forward to this, aren't we, Will? I can't wait, mate. I'm really, really looking forward to this. Our live show. Last year, we took it to the Leicester Comedy Festival and won the award for Best Live Podcast, beating out TV stars like Mike, Mark Watson, Alex Horn, and all those other fancy names. Tim Key, was he there? I can't remember. <laughs> yeah, um, he was. He we was, he was we beat them anyway. Um and this year, we're not taking it to any comedy festival because we don't need any more plaudits. We've already won, baby. Um, we're taking it to our good friends at the Arena Theatre in Wolverhampton where we're going to be bringing you a, a special episode diving into an episode of What If, checking out the Watcher, the Marvel multiverse, looking at Captain Britain and indeed Agent Carter so you all know what episode I'm talking about. We're only going to be doing this live and in person. Uh, well, we're going to record it and release it, is what I mean. We save the what-if episodes for um, for the live shows. Um, and we can also do a meet and greet with all you guys as well while we're there. We're going to be able to hang out, chat to everyone that can come and see us. Um, so it's going to be really, really cool. I've already got some great messages from some awesome people that are coming down um, to, to see the show. 
see the show in person. Um, rock bottom prices at just five pounds. That's the um, Arena Theatre in Wolverhampton on the twenty fifth of March. It's a Saturday afternoon. The show's at three pm. Um, you can get your tickets in advance, and that's going to be advisable. It is a uh, wonderful space, but get your tickets in advance. The show notes for this episode will have the URL for the site where you can get tickets. Alternatively, the uh, linked tweet, the, the pinned tweet, sorry, at Marvel Versus on Twitter, at Marvel Versus. That's how you can click through, get hold of those tickets. Come see us live! Marvel Versus Marvel, the live podcast, 25th of March at the Arena Theatre in Wolverhampton. Previously on Daredevil. Foggy and Karen have been secretly working with Ben Urich to build a credible case against Fisk. Matt eventually learns of this plan later and helps everyone as a lawyer and a vigilante. However, just as they are about to create a means to take on Fisk, Wilson appears in the public media to identify himself as a philanthropist and major investor interested in injecting money into Hell's Kitchen to reform it. His daring move took away any leverage they had, and Ben could not continue on. After a brutal fight with Nobu of the ninja clan The Hand, a vicious beating from Wilson Fisk, Matt Murdock became badly injured and near death. Bleeding heavily, he found his way back to his apartment and collapsed on the floor. Foggy unmasked the badly beaten figure and sees that the devil of Hell's Kitchen has been his best friend all along. So we've uh, spoken a bit about The Hand in the past, uh, especially in the last Daredevil episode, but what can you tell us about The Hand in the Daredevil comics? Let's have a, let's have a, a real root in there. Grab a handful, if you will. Ooh, ooh. Um, uh, I'm just going to have to correct you and say we did not talk about The Hand in the Daredevil episode. We didn't? Um, oh, okay. Don't listen. No, we talked about The Hand in the wolverine episode the wolverine i believe ah okay listen to that one as well as the daredevil listen to all our episodes again (laughs) not much is i mean they're introduced by frank miller in Mm. in the very early 80s i i said in the in the the kind of the the previous episode the previous part of this before the break we talked about how um the kind of the ninja craze seized the western world in the uh in the in the 80s the early 80s thanks to a book called the ninja that came out in 1980 so mm. frank miller had his, his his finger really on the pulse mm. um not much is revealed about by about them by by frank miller their creator he, he establishes that they're a, a secret order that they hide themselves out as assassins and spies and that they also worship some kind of demonic thing they think is called the beast mm. um and they possess some some not natural abilities yeah um and then later in the 80s frank miller would team up with chris claremont and and create the the wolverine miniseries the first solo adventures of wolverine which Mm. would establish that character and define his personality for years to come yeah and miller would bring the hand with him across into that miniseries so they they very quickly became Wolverine antagonists as well as Daredevil and those two characters shared them for for a long time um and then Chris Claremont thought that, that was they were really cool characters and he made them a fixture of Wolverine stories and X-Men stories and the hand would become instrumental figures in Frank's for example the story of Psylocke Elizabeth Braddock and stuff um 
And from there, they would bleed out to the rest of the Marvel Universe. But it was later writers that would establish their backstory and introduce more things about them. Um, some of them contradictory, because that's how Marvel sometimes works. So we said they were established um, by uh, Kejinobu uh, Yoshioka uh, in 1588, when uh, Kejinobu became the sensei of a, a, a school of, of swordsmen in, in a Japanese village and some of this relates to exactly the history of, of ninjutsu. They're frustrated with the corrupt government um, that have been tainted by foreign influence. So the ninjutsu kind of rise up as kind of like a peasant army or specialists in peasant armies. Um, Keijinobu transformed this school into a training ground for samurais whose goal was to put power back in the hands of the Japanese people. And so the hand is born. Um and he, he he talks about how just as a hand has five fingers, members of the inner circle of the hand were leaders of organizations and and and, and groups um, operating from each of Japan's five islands. So that's kind of part of the the, the name being tied into. But then Kejinobu is 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 mutinously murdered, and a a uh, a ninja clan called the Snake Root, the Snake Root Ninja Clan, take control of the hand, corrupt it from within, and impose upon it this cult of the beast, this this demon. And dark magic starts to filter throughout the hand. Their rituals include resurrecting dead warriors um, to work as kind of brainwashed slaves of the hand. Um, it's also said, and I don't know about this because this is contra- this contradicts things, but it's said that at the end of World War Two. A select few of politically orientated members of the Hand formed the original Hydra as a cabal of Japanese ultra-nationalists who plotted to overthrow the the liberal Japanese um, government and assassinate the Prime Minister and stuff and install kind of militaristic government. All Um, we need is an Italian ancient organisation and we got the full axis. There you go. (laughs) Uh, But this... um, and then it sort of says that Baron von Strucker seized control of and split it off. That does contradict modern tellings of how Hydra began in the Hydra origins, so mm. I'm not sure what that is. The, the, the Hand have had many different leaders over the years, including Electra, or was it? We'll Ooh. talk about that at some point in the future. When we watch um, the film, Electra. <laughs> no, when we watch a major series coming out. Oh. Um, uh, I can't say anything. Um, <laughs> Wilson Fisk has been the uh, leader of the Hand. Of course, he Matt has. Murdoch was the leader of the Hand, uh, okay. and currently Frank Castle, the Punisher, seems to have control of the Hand. Wow, uh, I'm looking forward to when we get into whatever we'll be watching that you are looking forward to. But enough of that. It's the it's next. Not ep- been released. It's released this year. Hmm. I'll look into I'll look into everything and try and guess what it is later. But we're on the next episode, season one, episode ten. Nelson v. Murdoch. Waking up after a near fatal beating from Fisk in his apartment, Foggy is angry that Matt kept his abilities and his crime fighting vid- activities a secret from him. Remembering how they first met in college as roommates, Foggy wanders aloud. If Matt Murdoch even is blind. Revealing how he got his powers and how Nurse Claire found out about his powers before Foggy. Foggy asks if Matt was behind the explosions and the dead cops. But Matt assures his friend that this trouble was caused by Fisk. When Karen rings Matt's phone, Foggy tells Matt that she should know the secret too. But when Karen rings Foggy's phone, he immediately covers for Matt. 
How do you make characters in a TV show look younger? Simple answer. Give them more hair and maybe a silly beard. Taylor's old as time, isn't it? They've got to do yeah. something to note a change in time. It's yeah, it's very 90s, isn't it? It's very late 90s, I think, or is it early noughties? No, from? Uh, what, what, what do you mean? Oh, in terms of the style, you know, long hair and a little beard. Oh, the style? I don't yeah. know. Yeah, Some, maybe. Sometime. But yeah, you, you really... I know it's Taylor's old time, but it's just like, they really went for it. It's like Foggy looks like he definitely was a bit wilder back in the day. But not in a way that doesn't suit the character. Hmm, yeah. Yeah. So, in the original stories, does Foggy ever learn about Matt's secret identity and powers? Interestingly, Karen learns before Foggy. Okay. Karen learns at the end of the 60s. Foggy doesn't learn until the mid-90s. 1995, 96. But the execution is pretty terrible. Um, Oh, okay. It happens in the middle of this very bad 90s story where... They've they've done this thing where Matt has a uh, kind of Fight Club split personality thing. Uh, he doesn't think he's Matt Murdock. He thinks he's another boxing themed hero called Battling Jack, um, which was his dad's nickname. Um, he yeah he starts to break down after a fight with someone dressed up as Daredevil. Um, I believe a woman has been kidnapped by a criminal organization and genetically manipulated into looking like a man, being a man. <laughs> and they brainwash and put memory implants in and turn her into the new daredevil. It's very bad and confusing mm. and bad. Okay. Um, and Matt comes out of this and then realizes, I can't see myself in the mirror. I must be blind. Does that mean I'm Daredevil? And just has this catatonic breakdown. And then that's how Foggy finds him and and, and goes, uh, you know, I, I guess you're probably Daredevil. And he gets like one page to kind of react to it before it's back to the story. And then Matt tries to kill himself as well. The 90s were a bad time for Marvel Comics. Yeah, we've we've covered it. Plenty of we've fair, covered it. Fair few episodes and it absolutely mm. dropped my jaw. Damn you, yeah. Ron Perlman! Not that like one. the the start of the Kang Dynasty. We talk about it. Mm. We talk about it in House of M. Mm. I think we talk about it in um, Maximum Carnage and also, uh, of course, Age Age of Age of Apocalypse and Onslaught. I'm glad we talked about it against the backdrop of other major comic arcs because, to be honest, uh, you could dedicate an entire episode to it. It's Mad. Yeah, it, there's, 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 there's scope for us to do something like that in the future where mm. we just do the collapse of, of Marvel, the bankruptcy and everything. People on Patreon going, oh, it's another Mr. Hollywood episode. <laughs> anyway, back to the story. At a rooftop garden, Wilson Fisk meets with Madame Gao, the leader of the Chinese criminal gang, as to the whereabouts of the Devil of Hell's Kitchen. Gao warns Fisk that the hand is preparing for retaliation. At the hospital, Ben Urich visits his terminally ill wife, Doris. He tells her that her condition is improving, and the two flirt and reminisce. But the next moment, Doris's memory goes, and she says hello to her husband, like the last five minutes didn't happen. Man, that bit where you just see the face change, like... No recognition of the last conversation they just had. Oh, that was tough. That was that was a tough. Have one. you ever experienced anything like that personally? F- no, 
Well, closest would be my granddad, but he he, he lost his speech faculties completely. You know, completely my anyway. yeah, my my uh, my granddad. I I have just powerful memory. Mm. He he was starting to deteriorate. He had um, we didn't mm. quite know what what was going on. We got the diagnosis later mm. on, but he he was suffering from. Um, dementia. Yeah. Um, he was. He was. He, what was happening is he was having um, a series of small strokes in his brain. Oh, no. Not physical. No physical. As in, that, mm. all strokes happen in the brain. Yeah. But they were they were happening in parts of the brain, and so it was like shutting off parts of his brain. So it was more um, like a sort of very precise strokes, really, rather than all over. I don't. One I don't thing. quite. I don't quite know. That's mm. how it was kind of sort of described. And so we we were having to check up on him three times a day because he was in. Um, Sheltered accommodation, but he wasn't in a care home. Mm. You know, he's in like you know what they call granny flats in this country. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so he was in a nice place there, and you know, it was it's a very long process to try and do anything with someone. You know, because some stage you have to convince a whole bunch of people in authority that this person can't have their independence anymore. It's a very mm. difficult process. Anyway, we're checking up on him three times a day. The family are morning, afternoon, and evening to make sure he's uh, everything's okay all throughout the day. I'm used to doing the afternoon slot because I work in a pub mainly nights. I remember going in, I've got my own keys. I go into his flat the same way I always would. And he is, he does not know who I am. Uh. And he's upset and he's angry uh, and he he can't be convinced of who I am, and it was so bizarre because I kind of knew what was happening because mm. um, we didn't really again at the time we didn't know he had dementia we just knew he was struggling with stuff yeah. and we didn't know what the problems were, um, and it was this odd thing to just have to not fight your corner and do this thing of like uh, accept I don't know just kind of. You just have to walk away. It was a very complicated, horrible thing. And it would happen a couple of times um, from that point on. Yeah, yeah, very, very weird. Never seen someone kind of completely forget in the middle. But, you know, I've had time, I've had multiple times where you just didn't know where I was when that's, I walked in. Yeah. That's 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 quite heartbreaking. My, yeah. my other granddad, who's still with us, I think he's in his 90s. He, uh, he, he he's, he's, I think he's, I think, I don't know if it's full-blown, but... He, he he'll sometimes not remember things, but it's it's not not in a kind of sudden switch. Get out of my house. More of a kind of mm. it's it, a nicer way. If that's the yeah. right thing to say. Yeah. It's like a bit more harmless. And oh, he just you know can't remember something. Yeah. Like, oh yeah. But you know he's he's not so hostile about it. But anyway, um, moving on from that, uh, Vondi Curtis Hall, who plays Ben Urich in this, really loved loved him in this. He was so good. But the only other thing I've ever seen him in is The Sopranos. That one episode he's in. Oh, oh! Have you ever seen Gridlocked? No, never two, heard of that. Tupac Tim Roth movie. Nope, never, never, never right. heard of that one. Uh, uh, Vondi Curtis Hall wrote and directed this great independent movie in the nineties mm. called Gridlocked. It's about a couple of musicians um, who were also um, heroin addicts, mm. and it's a day in their life as they try to get into a rehab program. Yeah. Um, and it's all the kind of people they meet in their lives. And uh, yeah, Vondi Curtis Hall wrote it, directed it, got Tupac right. Like it, um, Tupac died like a couple of months before the movie came out, mm. so it had a lot of like um, buzz and publicity because um, yeah. it's his last movie. Tim Roth did it. 
I forget. I, I think he'd just done the big Rob Roy movie or mm. whatever big kind of thing he was in as a lead, and he got his script and loved it. Mm. It's really interesting. People, have, it's kind of it's it's like, like a comedy drama. People have often called it the American Train Spotting. Ah, uh, yeah, because of what yeah. It, it's not it's not as amazing, groundbreaking, and cinderary as Train Spotting. But it's a it's a I really enjoyed it as a movie, and yeah, it's mm. it shows Tupac's acting chops a lot as well, and and, and I think Von Von D's definitely in it. He has a small role, um, and he's been in lots of I think he's been in lots of stuff here and there, but I. I think his major roles have been in American shows that I don't know if we've really had much of. No, that makes sense. On a, on a tangent, when I, when I used to review films in my spare time for a film website, I think it's Flickering Myth, uh, I remember reviewing a, a two-pack movie, and I was there going, oh boy, if this guy was still alive today, he'd be doing some... I, I think he's... He it's very impressive. Yeah, very good acting chops on him, which you can see in a lot of his videos and, and his live performances and stuff. Mm. He, he he had it all as a as a as a megastar like musical, you know, p- performer, recording yeah. artist, all that. He had it. He had it all, man. Yeah. yeah, absolute shame. Anyway, going through Matt's secret fighting gear, Foggy asks Matt about his fighting abilities, knowing that Matt's dad never taught him. Matt tells Foggy about Stick and how his mentor helped him hone his superhuman abilities. Demonstrating his abilities to Foggy, Matt alarms Foggy when he tells him he knows his heartbeat is increasing as the conversation continues. However, this ability could put Matt's career as a lawyer in jeopardy, not to mention the trust between Foggy and Matt broken by this revelation. Foggy and Matt's chemistry in just a, just a few scenes just felt exceptionally genuine. It's yeah, very, I, I, and I do, I do think, I do think Foggy is the driving force mm. of that because I don't yeah. think we feel it in other scenes that Charlie Cox has with other people. They're, they're all good scenes, and he's a good actor and everything. But I think Foggy is driving that because, as you sort of perhaps mentioned earlier, that he he feels quite a natural performer. We really associate with him and his very natural reaction to this and this kind of this palpable. Um, betrayal and those feelings it's great it's a great scene yeah absolutely brilliant scene so talking about how he can tell his heartbeats increasing that's that's remarkable tell me what how powerful just how powerful are daredevil senses uh, to begin with stanley and the others at marvel didn't yeah. really know how to make his, his abilities cool um <laughs> it was just like good hearing radar sense super agile how do you but sex over, up a blind guy <laughs> but over the years writers at marvel really delved into what super heightened senses would allow a person to do mm. and how they could be practically applied to the life of like an adventurer or a lawyer or something and it's interesting how none of them virtually none of them are yeah no none of them are for uh, 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 almost none of them are offensive capabilities mm. but they're still really cool so yeah. matt is a human lie detector right he knows when someone is lying because their heartbeat increases mm. he um he knows when someone's attracted to him <laughs> he, he knows how to recognize all those changes in the body he can smell the blood sugar rising in response to the stress hormone being released wow he can smell gunpowder residue on clothes and skin. He can feel air pressure being changed uh, as an object moves through the moves, you know, silently. He can hear muscles moving. Um, he can hear. 
He can hear which bones in your body are under more pressure and thus know which bones are weak and are your weak spots and how injured you are. He can sense and hear uh, the weak points in metal and doors and all things like that. Um, His touch is so sensitive he used to be able to read the slightly raised ink on printed books and newspapers. Amazing. So he wouldn't need Braille. He could pick up a newspaper and run his fingers over it and and, and read that. Um, although I think in a recent run, well, not even recent anymore because I'm old, but Mark Wade in a run just introduced the idea that kind of books and newspapers and things like that, they don't, they use like laser printing ink these days. So it's not like the old days where there's raised ink. Mm. So That's- yeah. That and his three hundred and sixty sight for uh, mm. for for um, for the radar, yeah. yeah, is very very impressive. I like that because whenever you have like a vague uh, superhero skill set, you know, superpower skill set, it's nice that they actually go into this depth and go, oh, but what if he did that? Could he touch that? Could he hear that? Could he smell that? I love yeah. it. I love that amount of depth. Anyway. At the New York Bulletin, Ben Urich is told by Michael uh, Mitchell Ellison, the editor-in-chief, that the position as one of the paper's editors is now free, a position with a salary that could really help with Doris's care. But Ben turns down the offer, saying that he has always been, and always will be, a reporter. Later, Ben shocks Karen by sneaking into her office, telling her she needs to be more careful. Ben gives her a box full of everything he has on Wilson Fisk, as he feels he should no longer pursue the story any further. Ben says he should be focused on his wife, whom he's decided to care for at home instead of putting her in a facility. However, Karen asks to take Ben for a ride to show him something. Karen uh, is a good is a good character in the series. Uh, is this what she's like in the Marvel comics? Or is she written in the same kind of way that all Stanley 60s women are written? Yeah, unfortunately, um, be- because of a long history of comics writing bad female characters, she's not anywhere near as cool as this, mm. um, or, or interesting as this. So, yeah, to begin with, she exists purely as the the love interest. Um, a lot mm. of the female characters we've looked at in the sixties are that's how, that's just how they are. They they have no agency. Um, they 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 don't get to do any cool stuff. Don't have any drives. She doesn't have any drive of her own other than I love Matt Murdock. That's her whole personality. Um, she's she. A lot of the female characters in the sixties are are actors' plot devices, right? They are the prize to be chased. They're the prize that the 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 other lead characters might get at the end of the story. Um, so she's Matt's love interest throughout the sixties. And then he kind of reveals his identity to her, and that causes some problems. And then she leaves the Daredevil series in the early seventies to go and be an actress mm. in, um, in 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 Hollywood. In that Hollywood, um, so that Matt can have more of a, a varied love life, and writers mm. and editors can introduce lots of different romantic complications into his story. It was felt that, like as happened to spider-man several times over the years tying the character to one person reduces the kind of stories and possibilities you can tell um so it was like let's get karen out of here and then he can hook up with black widow and do some other fun stuff um but her most famous comic book moments are all tragedy driven in the acclaimed 1986 born again storyline 
Karen is reintroduced by Frank Miller to the Daredevil stories after like uh, you know decade and a half or whatever. Um, and we learn that after a brief period of success, Karen, uh, in, you know, as an, an actress, Karen became um, a heroin addict, um, became desperate and impoverished, and ended up story, starring in pornographic films in Mexico. Oh no! Strapped for cash as a junkie, she sells the information. Of Matt's secret identity for a shot of heroin. And we see this information go from drug dealer to drug dealer and work its way, being bought and sold up through the criminal underworld until finally it reaches the highest possible peak of the criminal underworld and is whispered into the ear of Wilson Fisk. Mm. The biggest secret of his most hated foe outed for a single shot of dope. Um, and it, it it leads to a disastrous turn of events. Um, it should be pointed out, th- there, there is a redemption arc built in, sort of, for, for Karen Page. It should be pointed out that Frank Miller's depiction of women in action comics has never been great. <laughs> um, yeah, I've read he, Sin City. He likes to write crime noir style stories mm. and he draws from the tropes of those genres and perhaps the film noir genres where typically women are reduced and constricted to be portrayed as conniving and dangerous femme fatales, simpering non-entities or sex workers being exploited by people of the system. Um, and that's, unfortunately, yeah, uh, we get aspects of that now whether you could look at that and say uh, that's simply the i don't know the genre he's aping i don't know if that really works as an excuse um karen's other famous moment comes in 1999 when kevin smith is writing the daredevil series and bringing tons of attention to the character rescuing it from the doldrums of sales and making it the number one comic in the country Um, um karen returns to matt's life only to be murdered in front of his eyes by bull, as it were, by bullseye, um, and that kicks off, you know, another Matt versus Bullseye story. So Karen can be seen as an example of a woman in a refrigerator trope in in, in comic books. Mm. Um, we've talked about it and touched on it in the past. A tremendous writer Gail Simone um, came up with the term in pointing out that in such a male-dominated industry as superhero comics, there is a, a, a tendency for male creators to have female characters undergo exploitation, violence, and abuse yeah. purely as a way to drive motivation for the male characters. They, they, they are plot devices in a horrific a sequence of events so that the male character can go i'll get revenge on you and that's all they exist for you know the girlfriend love interest horribly attacked or whatever um and now the stakes have really been raised um <laughs> the, the 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 term is um uh named after a, a quite a gruesome story in which green lantern's girlfriend is shockingly murdered and then just very horribly stuffed inside of his refrigerator um, so we see a lot of movies and tv shows adaptations of comic books make changes to the source material we see that all the time karen page in this series for me is one of the all-time greatest alterations and changes made to a character 
She is fantastic in this series. Wonderfully rounded. The character you care about. She's a huge addition to the overall Daredevil world. Um, it's a real shame we don't get this version of the character in in, in the comics, and we we did we didn't get that. Mm. Um, she has a lot of fans and supporters, but often I question those fans and supporters. I think they're fondly remembering older style comics rather than really evaluating whether this was a, a good character. Yeah, I totally get that. At Fisk's office, Owsley is unhappy with Kingpin for burning Nobu alive as Fisk prepares for a charity gala. As they discuss who was responsible for the recent attacks, Owsley claims that he has been unable to find anything to blame on Nobu's men. At Matt's home, Foggy continues to press Murdoch about his vigilante activities. Matt remembers back to his and Foggy's internship at the successful and powerful lawn firm Landman and Zack, during which time they found themselves being forced to defend many large and highly profitable corporations, such as the Rock Song Corporation, against innocent people whose lives were being destroyed under the orders of parish landmen who ran the company, something which had disgusted Matt personally. I think the Rock Song Corporation popped up in that Miles Morales Spider-Man game, which I completed recently. I think they're in that. They're a... Uh, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Probably yep. get on to that at another point. Uh, Vincent D'Onofrio, D'Onofrio, though. Oh, God. It's so good to go back and watch him in this uh, as Kingpin. Uh, I'm really happy to see him return as the MCU. It's just... I have never seen an actor slip into a role so well uh, in a Marvel film since uh, uh, J.K. Simmons as J. Jonah Jameson. It's just perfect, perfect casting. But uh, you know, perfect casting, but not one you immediately would come to mind if that makes sense. Like he's not no, the because one. of the physicality and stuff, and and it and it's yeah. a slightly different. It's it's quite different interpretation. Well, mildly different interpretations of the comics as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, he's. I, I used to. I'm not. I'm not one for watching those kind of one and done uh, dramas like Law and Order. Mm. But when he was fronting Criminal Intent, I would watch that. Every week, mm. loved him in Criminal Intent. He's so interesting. He gives such an interesting, quirky performance in mm. things. I remember um, him in uh, Full Metal Jacket. He was unforgettable in that film. Mm. Yeah, very dark. As Ben Urich drives Karen Page to a care home, she's recommended. The journalist tells Karen about his wife's condition. Back at Matt's apartment, Matt tells Foggy about the early days of his abilities and how he could hear all of Hell's Kitchen. But one night, after quitting Landsman and Zack. Matt took it upon himself to confront an abusive father with no legal evidence against him, but who Matt had discovered through his heightened senses. Great little scene here showing how Matt works on both sides of the law. Very, mm. very, very dark. Very, it feels very Frank Miller-esque. So what was the first thing Matt used his powers to do? It wasn't when he was an adult. It was when he was a kid, when he was a child. Mm. He, he, in, in Miller's Man Without Fear, we see... Uh, Matt takes his, his his training from Stick and his new abilities, and he goes after the men he thinks are responsible for killing his father. Mm. Um, he overhears things, and he 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 knows that the uh, a criminal known as the Fixer um, uh. fixed it. Oh, I'm not going to go down that route. What, Mister Fixer? Different route. Oh, okay. Um, uh, yeah, it was going to be a Jim will fix it route. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry, sorry. I got um, And he, uh, yeah, he, 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 he punishes the. You know, he beats the crap out of the gang, even though he's a kid. Um, he's so wiry and fast, and he knows what's going to happen. He chases down the fixer and confronts the fixer, who pulls a gun on Matt. 
Mm. Before he can fire it, the fixer has a heart attack and dies. Um, and it brings into question this idea of was Matt going to kill that guy? Like, what was his end game in, yeah. in that scenario? Um, and then he tracks down the, the very last member of the gang who's on the run is a guy called Angelo, um, the last person responsible. Um, and he tracks him down to a brothel. And mm. Matt, like, breaks into the brothel. And again, he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a kid. He's a. Yeah, barely a teenager. Yeah, he's in his mid, mid-teens, I guess, 14, 15. Um, and he's immediately attacked by all the sex workers that, that work there. And they um, they all start punching and kicking and scratching and hitting him with heels and stuff. And he's getting the crap kicked out of him. And in the melee, Matt pushes them all off him. And he pushes one woman accidentally out of the window. She smashes through the window and falls to her death. Um, and he runs away in horror over what he's done by not not being in control of the situation and stuff. Um, now that Miller would bring that character back, that woman, mm. um, and she would become an antagonist called Typhoid Mary. Um, so she doesn't actually die, but it's mm. um, quite a shocking, uh, a shocking turn of events. Yeah, very shocking. At the lavish Saint Benazet retirement care home. Ben is shown around by Karen before they enter the room of one of the residents who turns out to be the mother of Wilson Fisk, meaning Fisk's mother was not dead as he had claimed. She goes on to reveal that as a child, the young Fisk had murdered his father by beating him to death with a hammer. Very good plot twist here. We all think it's just a nice little showing Ben around the care home for his wife, but no, ulterior emulative and BAM! Plot twist! Kingpin mother's in there and she's not in the ground. <laughs> yeah, I I, so. I, I I like that. I, really... no, I don't know if I got a plot twist, but yes, it's a plot, plot twist. It was unexpected. Okay. It's plot twist. M Night Shyamalan esque twist. There, there we go. Where the story continued. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> Let me say words. Uh, so, is this what Fisk's childhood was like in the original Marvel comics? Did he have an abusive father and the whatnot? And the whatnot, and, oh, and you, the, know, you know, abusive that, father and all that whatnot, all that um, chestnut. It's it, uh, we don't get any kind of a definitive depiction of it like we do here. Mm. Um, so you pick things up over the years of what he has said here and there. He's described he described himself as being an unpopular, blubbery child, mm. um, which which led him to to try and make himself a physical force to be reckoned with. Mm. Um, he he was very poor and impoverished, you know, kind of very kind of. I think I think probably worse than this. Um, uh, you know, he, he talks about living in the gutter. Um, claimed his father was a a crack addict. Um, we I think there is something about him committing his first murder as a child. It doesn't say his father though, um, but you wouldn't put it past him. Um, he he. he he somehow he self like he didn't have any education. His his very very impoverished family. He didn't think he had any any education, um, and so he stole books um, to teach himself um, all the things he thought he'd need to learn, um, and that's how he kind of landed on political science, which he decided would be his key to success the first would be being a physical force and he was already um he had the genes to be very very tall and stuff mm. um he focused in on sumo um as as the as the kind of physical um 
physical kind of art to to go down bodybuilding and sumo was what he was going down to the to become this this phys- very physical power mm. and then political science so no it's not we don't we don't quite get anything like 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 this although there yeah. are shades of it aren't there okay okay at a charity gala, Fisk gives a speech about making Hell's Kitchen a safer place to live after the recent attacks before mingling with various important people. However, the next moment, various guests start collapsing and foaming at the mouth. The champagne has been poisoned. Just then, Fisk is shocked to see his wife, Vanessa, collapse on the floor. At Matt's apartment, Foggy is shocked at Matt's vigilante actions, accusing Murdoch of being no better than Fisk in doing what he thinks is right even if it harms others. The next moment, Foggy leaves Matt's apartment and quits their law practice. Very sad. But in the comics, has Foggy ever broken up with Matt, so to speak? <laughs> uh, yeah, in the early, early-ish 70s, before... Uh, bef- yeah, in the early 70s, like a decade before we get this Frank Miller kind of stuff we're talking about. Um, Matt and Foggy break up, and Matt actually leaves... New York and moves to the side of the country. Wow. Um, there's this, there's a schism between them. Um, Foggy is running for district attorney um, mm. and you know campaigning for that. That goes yeah. on for quite a while in the Daredevil comics. And Matt isn't really around or involved. It doesn't help him. Um, he's M- Matt and Karen have broken up. They got very have they broken up at this point. They've got a tr- I think they have got this troubled relationship that isn't going well, um, and so he's not in his right mind as Matt Murdock. He's got problems with Daredevil. He's just not around, never around to help Foggy. Foggy feels like abandoned in all of this. Mm. Um, Matt isn't able to kind of explain why he's not around because the answer is because I'm Daredevil all the time. Um, so that's a strain. Foggy wins the election, becomes district attorney, and then Foggy is forced to prosecute Natasha Romanoff, the Black Widow, Ooh. who is Matt's Matt's paramour at the time. They are bumping uglies like you wouldn't believe. Um, and so Matt defends the Black Widow in court. So it's Matt versus it's Nelson versus Murdoch in court, um, and that serves to really sever. The friendship between them. Matt cannot believe that Foggy would do this and prosecute. Foggy's like, my hands are tied. I've got to, and 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 also, where the hell have you been? Like, you didn't even help me get this amazing job, and you've not been supporting me. And so Matt leaves, leaves New York. He he ends mm. their partnership, closes up the law practice, although that's kind of gone now. Foggy's the district attorney, and in goes off to San Francisco with uh, with Natasha with the Black Widow where they start up their you know their lives as crime fighting duo and um mm. and a sexual duo as well. Ooh. Oh wow. Previously on Daredevil. <laughs> I love it. I'm not doing that all the time. Oh, where out oh, my voice. Okay. What's well, the last time I'm doing it in the episode? So don't worry. Uh <laughs> All of his near-death encounters made Matt realise he needs some form of protection when out on the streets. While fighting Wilson Fisk, Murdoch realises that Fisk's suit was made from some sort of tough, lightweight armour. Matt managed to track uh, down a man named Melvin Potter, the mentally unbalanced engineer that helped Fisk make his armoured business suits. Potter agrees to help Matt and make him a suit similar to Fisk's. 
So this is a very interesting part of the story, a bit of the old engineering that I do like. Uh, is there anything like this in the comics, though? Does does he get a special suit made for him like by Melvin Potter? Is Melvin Potter in the comics? Melvin Potter. Here we go. Also known as the Gladiator. Um, <laughs> first appears in issue 18 of Daredevil 1966. Um... Uh, Melvin Potter is a costume designer not an engineer, a costume designer who has the deluded belief that he's far better and greater than any superhero. In order to prove his point, he makes himself up a uh, a suit of battle armour, complete with deadly circular blades on his wrists that he can throw and fire at people and he he calls himself the gladiator and he battles Daredevil his first uh, first outing he later goes on to join electro's emissaries of evil um who we've remember the league of losers we looked at oh god that rings up yeah in I remember obscure this. marvel yeah. um and he's a recurring minor villain in the 60s and the 70s and then in the early 80s uh, writers had melvin potter great name by the way um melvin potter he sounds like the lead name the lead character in a british a charming british sitcom he does he um, does in the in the in the early eighties, writers had Melvin decide to go straight and reform. Um, uh, Matt represents him in court and helps him with his legal issues and has a bit of a. I don't know. He Matt wants everyone to go straight, so he kind of. I don't know if he says he got a soft spot for him, but he helps him out. Um, Melvin engages in therapy sessions with a psychiatrist, which sounds healthy. Mm. Uh, he later ends up marrying that woman. That don't marry your therapists. Never You're not Tony Soprano. Date, never date your therapist. Nope. Um, and then during the Frank Miller run, he even helps Elektra and Daredevil uh, as they battle the hand in in, in a fight. Um, and he'd occasionally put his old costume on to try and do the right thing. But from the early eighties onwards, he's portrayed as a guy with mental health problems who made a lot of mistakes and is now trying to put his life back together. Um, so he's, he never he never made a suit for Daredevil for, for Matt Murdock, um, but he was once pressured into making a replica of the Daredevil costume for Wilson Fisk to use to try and have someone frame Daredevil or something something like that. Yeah, yeah. wow, <laughs> amazing! They take someone with such a colourful name and go, yeah, he just just works in his shed. It was widely <laughs> it was who who the TV series. Yeah, the TV series, yeah. Yeah, I suppose so. Well, what else are they going to do with him? Like before he was he was he was just a guy who worked in a costume shop. Yeah, that's fair. But I don't know, someone called the Gladiator. I'm like mm. it's widely accepted in in Daredevil like stories that that was a lame. It was that was lame. It was yeah. like a lame. I think he's got. A, I, like, I love the, the the circular blade weapons are really cool. Oh no, that's that's cool. That's very cool. And sometimes he loses it and fights Daredevil, and Daredevil's always like, "Come on, Melvin, are you, are you off your meds? What's going on here? I thought we were past this, buddy." <laughs> <clears throat> Fisk's assistant James Wesley chloroforms Karen and kidnaps her, holding her in an abandoned warehouse. Wesley threatens to Karen to leave Fisk and his enterprises alone. He tells her to convince all her friends to do the same, or terrible things will happen to Ben, Foggy, and Matt. Karen manages to snatch Wesley's gun away from him and shoots him dead before fleeing the scene. With the Russian and Japanese gangs gone, Matt redirects his wrath on the Chinese triad. Led by Madame Gao, she has a group of blind Chinese immigrant actors, drug mules, that distribute the drugs throughout the city. Matt intervenes and attempts to stop Gao, Though he is not able to physically stop her, he essentially destroys the drug processing plant. 
With all of Fisk's partners gone, Ben Urick tries to publish a story exposing Wilson Fisk. But Urick's newspaper, the New York Bulletin, refused to publish a story about such a powerful man. Instead, Ben publishes a story online and tells the world what he has learned about Wilson Fisk. Ben's choice incurred the wrath of the kingpin and Fisk personally choked Urick to death. Oof. In the original stories, has Ben Urick ever been published, ever published an expose like this? During um, this Frank Miller run in the 80s, Urich is, is as hot on the heels of exposing Wilson Fisk. Mm. Um, he gets uh, beat up by some underworld goons for asking the, the wrong questions in the wrong places. That doesn't stop him. Um, he meets, and uh, this was an amazing scene. Only Frank Miller could draw this. Mm. He meets an informant clandestinely in a darkened movie theatre. Yeah. Um, and... You know, so they can pretend like they don't know each other, and just as the informant is is about to give him the full goods on the kingpin, Ben sees a deadly side blade emerge through the guy's chest as he is stabbed through the back Ooh. by Electra. She's snuck up behind him and just plunged it through the chair through the guy's back, and Electra warns Ben off and then stabs him with a sigh as well, um, although uh, doesn't kill him. Um, and so he's still, still chasing the story. Um, during the uh, the, the born again storyline, mm. he finds um, another informant, a corrupt cop, who's willing to identify Fisk. Um, but Ben is a. Uh, it's all taking place in hospital. One of the nurses turns out to not be a real nurse. She shatters Ben's fingers, breaks all the fingers on both his hands. <sighs> Ooh. Telling him to leave Fisk, uh, you know, stop talking about quits. And he even has to listen on the phone as one of his sources is murdered. Oh, God. And that, stu- that he, he has this moment where it's like, I don't need this. I got my wife, who I love. I'm not going anywhere near this story. But then he spurred a bit more um, into kind of pursuing things. And towards the end of the Born Again story, I mean, the whole end of it is Daredevil and Uruk. Desperately trying to get someone to come forward and give evidence, and one of the hitmen, one of the assassins, one of the goons, to that can sorry identify mm. Fisk, and eventually they do find they find some, they do get some hard evidence, and Ben publishes the story. Um, and although Fisk beats a lot of the charges brought against him in you know in, in court, it Ben's story shatters his public image, and this whole thing of Fisk being able to. Um, be a public face of legitimate companies and no one knows what's going on whilst he hides in the shadows and pulls the strings. That's gone from the moment that the, the Uric story gets gets published. Oof. Right, that brings us swiftly on to the season finale. Season 1, episode 13, Daredevil. At Ben Urich's funeral, Matt Murdock, Karen Page, ben Win- Ben's widow Doris and the staff at the New York Bulletin give a tearful farewell to their murdered friend, husband and colleague. Giving her condolences to Doris, Karen blames herself for pushing Ben into a situation. But Doris tearfully reassures her, reassures her that Ben always pushed himself into getting the story in dangerous situations like this. Talking with Father Lantham. Matt has a similar conversation where he blames himself for not preventing his tragic death from happening. Back at the office, Karen tells Matt about how she's scared that Fisk will come for her next. 
Killing off a main character like this in the first episode of a TV show, very bold move. Last episode. Last episode, but it's the first season of a TV show. Very. That's fine, but you said first episode. I was confused. Yes. Sorry, first. Yeah, yeah. Very, 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 very bold move. Does pay off. Yeah, especially because Ben is such um, a really important figure in the two time periods this Mm. season this TV series emulates the, 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 the Miller run in the eighties and the Brian Michael Bendis run in the, in the, in the two thousands. Mm. Ben is a massive part of the supporting cast, uh, a really cool character, a really great figure as well. Um, and I was disappointed because I really love the character of Ben Urich, but that being said, um, as the story progresses into season two and things, you realize that, you know, Karen is occupying that role really. And mm. that's, that's a much better use of her, so yeah. Nice. So Matt is uh he's feeling a lot of guilt in the series. A lot of guilt. And I know he's uh I was gonna make a Catholic reference, but I don't know how to now. <laughs> is that something they took from the comics? Is he guilt like, ridden with guilt? Yeah, and, and and Catholicism is part of it. So Frank Miller's run on Daredevil um, places a, a a heavy emphasis on on Matt's Catholic upbringing. Yeah, um, Miller uses it to expand Matt Murdock's contradictory life. Mm. Unlike any other of the superheroes or, or action adventure characters, for years the focus in in, in Daredevil is on the contradiction between um, being an officer of the of the law, of the court, following the rules of that to try and find uh, a compromised form of justice, because all mm. anything we find in a court is the compromised form of justice, whilst at the same time Matt is putting on a mask, breaking those very same rules in pursuit of a more pure and true justice. Mm. But with Miller's writing, that contradiction has expanded to a depiction of a man of of Catholic upbringing and faith who doesn't just ignore the laws of the land, but also ignores God's laws to go out and inflict violence and fear on the people that he alone judges to be guilty. Um, mm. we've we've talked a lot about Spider Man on this podcast and how he's always wrestling with the existential questions about who he is and where he belongs and battling a crisis of faith. Miller's Daredevil is really battling a crisis of faith. He takes that superhero crisis of faith and literally applies it to religion and and, and faith. As Matt wonders whether he is serving God or the devil putting like his own convictions beliefs and his own pride about what he thinks and believes above that of the god that he was taught about and and brought up to to believe in and catholic guilt as we look at it is defined as this kind of excess guilt um that is Mm. that is almost i mean it's most closely associated with ex-catholics lapsed Uh, catholics being at odds with your faith means to be at odds with the whole structure and rules of the world around you yeah. because your faith defines that world. And that becomes a key and defining characteristic of Matt Murdock. Being at odds with the whole structure and rules of the world around you. He is an officer of the court 
who puts himself above those rules and breaks them. He's a man of faith who puts himself above the rules of God and breaks them as well. He believes in both institutions, but he knows that they fail innocent, vulnerable people. So he dresses up like the devil and Mm. breaks the rules, damns himself to help other people. And Ah. that is Daredevil. I like that. I like that a lot. That is, that that's a great duality of man, right there. Love it. Terrific. At Fisk's penthouse, a recovering Vanessa asks Fisk about his next business moves. With Wilson saying he'll never leave her side, despite the danger it puts her in. That night at a warehouse, Fisk meets with Owsley to settle irregularities with his account. After Fisk comments on how nervous Owsley is acting, his account admits that Gao and himself try to kill Vanessa although he denied any involvement with James Wesley's death. Owsley tells Fisk that with Vanessa in the picture, Kingpin has been acting erratic and he and Gao need Wilson back in a more stable mindset. Owsley calmly informs Fisk that their partnership is at an end and Fisk is to hand over half his assets to him. When Fisk asks why he should do this, Owsley informs him that he has corrupt cop Carl Hoffman, and if that anything happens to Owsley, Hoffman will go to the police and tell them all about Fisk's operations. An enraged Fisk punches Owsley, who counters with a hidden taser, but this only angers Wilson Moore, who screams, You hurt Vanessa! before throwing Owsley down an abandoned elevator shaft, killing him instantly. Fisk then orders a subordinate to find and kill Hoffman. Fisk's rage in this show is legendary. Very legendary. Mm, oh, yeah. Very few comic <clears throat> villains have scared me with their physical prowess like this. He's scary. With Fisk, there's this realism to it. Like When he beats that guy's head in with a car door, is brutal. Always. I always come think about that when I think about this show. The little brutal moments like that. I mean, he's a guy, you look at the physique on him, it's like, yeah, I can really see him doing that in real life. So Leland Owls- Owsley, he's a character from the original comics, I assume. This will. Before the Kingpin, <laughs> Daredevil's most recurring villain was the Owl! <laughs> Daredevil issue three, introduced in 1964. Leland Owsley was once a successful financier and financial investor nicknamed the Owl of Wall Street um, for his financial wisdom. Do you know what that sounds like? That sounds like a children's book, but there's a spoof on the Wolf of Wall Street or something. Yeah, I believe it's quite yeah. a modern uh, retro retcon kind of nickname that, yeah. that didn't existed initially. Yeah. Um, Anyway, uh, he gets charged with some, I don't know, something. He sets himself up as a, as a crime lord after he going down on financial charges. Um, and he's um, he uh, he starts running gangs and stuff and kind of putting his, his skills into, um, into, into being a criminal. So he, he takes this um, a, a serum, superhuman enhancements of what he's after. He gets a serum that gives him the ability to fly by, I think it hollows out <laughs> his bones or something. Um, so he can glide, basically. He can't, yeah. I'm not sure if he can really fly, fly. And fights Daredevil and tries to kill him. And then he keeps coming back. Um, so he's a regular goofy villain in the 60s and 70s. Mm. Um, he can uh, he can leap. So he, he, he glides, so he doesn't fly. And then he gets a cape, which helps him glide even more. 
um and uh yeah there's he's an he's an odd character and he does more he takes more experimental drugs and surgical um procedures to to help him kind of glide and fly better and i think he get he wears razor sharp talons attached to his hand i think he actually gets yeah. them embedded into his hands and Ugh. um he does something to his to his face as well and his sanity starts to slip he he in in later comics he's you know eating live mice with his vintage 600 dollar wine um, amazing and at various times when the kingpin has been like ousted from the from his criminal empire the owl has tried to claim the top spot as the boss of bosses in the underworld with varying degrees of success um and yeah he's a long-standing daredevil villain oh and uh we also have the owl to thank for the creation of a very important marvel character okay in the in the in the spin-off x-men series x factor there was a uh, a group of bad guys called the alliance of evil and they had a mysterious master who was um putting all these evil forces against the original x-men who were called x-factor at the time and um Bob Layton was the writer of the series, and the final page of X Factor number five, it was going to reveal that the head of the Alliance of Evil was the Owl, which would have been very de- underwhelming even in 1986. I, uh, yeah. But Bob Layton left the book. And a new writer, Louise Simonson, was was um, put in place, and she was said, editor Bob Harris said, I need a new I, I don't want the I don't want the owl. Come up with a new villain for the book. Come up with a brand new villain to be the, the secret mastermind behind the Alliance of Evil. And Louise Simmonson said, Okay, fine, and invented Apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> so without the instead of instead of the, we nearly got the owl. Imagine if we had the age of the owl in the <laughs> X Men comics as he re remade the world in his image. Yeah, so that's how we got Apocalypse because the owl was so lame that Bob Harris went, not this guy. Amazing. I'm just like, I did an image searching him and I see one of him eating a mouse. Yeah, chowing down. At Fogwell's gym, Foggy talks to Matt in the middle of a particular angry training session. Matt says he's going after Fisk for what he's done, but Foggy is quick to remind him that last time Murdoch went up against Fisk, Matt ended up half dead. After apologising for not being at Ulrich's funeral due to, uh, due to working on how... Sorry. After apologising for not being at Ulrich's funeral, funeral due to working on how to bring Fisk down, Foggy tells Matt that they need to go after Fisk using the law. Meeting with Officer Brett Mahoney, they tell him that Ben was killed by Fisk when he was trying to expose the truth about him. Matt then overhears Corbin receiving an order to find Hoffman, a corrupt cop who was stashed somewhere by Owsley and can talk to the FBI about all of Fisk's dealings. That evening, at the office, Murdoch, Nelson and Page continue their investigation against Fisk. After going through files and records, they find an unlisted property which is owned by Owsley. Meanwhile, Fisk also is informed that the NYPD found Hoffman and orders to send a team there, leaving no survivors. At Hoffman's hideout, a team of corrupt NYPD officers, led by Corbin, storm the place and shoot everyone. However, before they execute Hoffman, Matt takes down the entire team in seconds, saving Hoffman and tells the detective to turn himself in and testify against Fisk. Matt tells Hoffman to turn himself over to Officer Mahoney specifically, as he is one of the only good cops not in Fisk's pocket. With Nelson and Murdoch representing him, 
Hoffman tells the FBI everything he knows about Fisk's business enterprise. This information leads to the mass arrests of Fisk's associates. Seeing the arrests on the news at his penthouse, Wilson tells a panicking Vanessa that they need to be calm. Fisk presents her with a wedding ring and proposes, but the proposal is interrupted by the FBI, who drag Fisk away into custody. Excellent use of Nissan Dorma during the montage of corrupt cops getting arrested was just perfect. What? Uh, I know. I don't. I don't. I don't. I couldn't conjure it to my mind. I know it's a classical piece of music. Nissan Dorma. No, I, I, I think it's like. Oh no! I always get it mixed up with another one, so I won't bother with it. I won't. I won't try and sing it. But if you so, know it, you so know it. Godfather esque though. It's. It's. I think it's Pavarotti, and it's very right, of right. that. And it's just mwah, perfect. Also, underneath that evil, Filson really loves Vanessa. It's like the opposite of Robert De Niro at the end of Heat. Remember, remember the end of Heat. Yeah, Wilson Fisk is not capable of love. Impossible. Mm. Absolutely impossible. Then what there is, is this then? What is anything? Wilson Fisk is a child. Oh. He never grew up. Okay. This is this is this is he he needs mommy. He needs ah, mommy to go. tell him that he's special and that the things he's doing are good and right. That's what this is. Okay. There's but- there's no I I I I bristle at the idea we could say Wilson Fisk is capable of love. Um Someone, Thanks. someone, Thanks. someone pointed out on when we chatted about this. Oh, I know uh, Paul, what you're going to say. Paul Savage, friend of the yeah. show, talked about the, the the painting, and he was like something about, but yeah, but he loves that really nice painting. Yeah. That's a horrible painting. The what's he called? The <laughs> rabbit in the snowstorm was nothing, nothing there. It's an there, ugly yeah. void. That's what Wilson Fisk is. An I, ugly I, void. I think the last I can't forgot what you said, but the last thing you said to him on that thread really made me howl. I was just saying thinking. He was like, Oh, I don't know. Maybe they were trying to tell us that there was that that it was a no, no, no. The the T V show is not trying to tell us that Wilson Fisk has a soul. <laughs> well <laughs> thanks for good art or whatever. Thanks for okay. thanks for disproving me, Dr. Melfi. Um so Vanessa, she's a character from the Daredevil comics, I assume. Well, originally, the Spider-Man comics, because um, if we go back to our original Dead uh, episode, the Kingpin yes, is yeah. a Spider-Man villain first, and it's really Frank Miller. This this show is so Frank Miller. The, mm. It's Frank Miller in the 80s who goes, oh, I need um, you know a, a, a shadowy boss of bosses. I'll use that old Spider-Man villain, the Kingpin. Um, so Vanessa is introduced um, when... when the kingpin is a spider is a yeah spidey villain, and she's in the mold of the long suffering wife that does not approve of the violence her husband is involved in and everything. Um, and there is there is a little there says a little something that that might be I don't know the, the you might be able to say comic book kingpin loves his wife again I don't know if I think so, but there is a moment in the in the seventies where the kingpin has a near-death experience and Vanessa gives him an ultimatum you have 24 hours to get out of crime stop crime you have one day or I'm (laughs) leaving you um and the kingpin you know goes about putting his affairs in orders and the last thing he wants to do before he stops being a criminal forever is murder spider-man he's like if I can get this in under that (laughs) deadline I'm gonna do it and he has the opportunity. He's just about to kill Spider-Man when the deadline passes. And Vanessa is like, you have to choose. You can kill Spider-Man. And if you do, I'm leaving you. Or come away with me now. And he's like, ah, oh, fine. I won't kill Spider-Man. Um, <laughs> and that's one of his first kind of retirements. And then he, he comes back and 
Um, and Vanessa does get targeted and attacked and things, and um, she's buried under some rubble, and only Daredevil fight is only able to kind of track her down and find her heartbeat and everything. She's kind of gone into a, a she's amnesiac, she's mm. mentally unstable. I think she goes into a coma, and Daredevil finds her, and basically he um, he does leverage Vanessa against. Um, against the kingpin, um, and is is uh, yeah, it's it's a whole it's a it's a, it's a back and forth situation mm. um, between uh, Vanessa Fisk and Daredevil. Um, she ultimately would try to get them manipulate both of them to try and kill each other off so that she can be done with them forever, um, and then she dies. And when she does die. She dies of natural causes, like I think it's cancer or something. Mm. Matt Murdock takes it pretty hard because he's had this quite intense relationship with them all and always felt that Vanessa was kind of like the route to maybe ending this war with ah. Fisk. And he's kind of guilted because I think her last um, wish is for him to serve as the Kingpin's lawyer and get him out of some charges that have been dropped, that have been brought against him, and so he has to go ahead with that. It's a, it's a, a very convoluted um, set of events. Daredevil's basically like, "I'll help you do this," but the end result is you renounce your American citizenship, and never come back to my country again. Um, <laughs> and it's kind of yeah, yeah, a lot of vendettas, and the the memory of Vanessa keeps them from going after each other for a while. Spicy. As Murdoch, Nelson and Page celebrate their victory, Fisk is transported in the convoy by the FBI and NYPD. In the armoured convoy, Fisk recites a parable from the Bible to the FBI agents inside. The story of the Good Samaritan, in which a man is beaten and left in the dirt, only to be ignored and left to die by a priest and another religious man. Then a Samaritan came and helped the man, caring for his wounds, while also then giving him his money. Fisk explains he always believed he is the Samaritan in the story, but he had learned he is neither the Samaritan or the priest, but he represents the men of ill intent who had attacked the traveller, who had been on a road he should not have been on. The next moment, the convoy is attacked by a group of heavily armed mercenaries. With their help and an FBI agent inside the truck working for the kingpin, Fisk escapes. It was very jewels in Pulp Fiction that 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 speech, wasn't it? Yeah, <laughs> righteous fury and anger. Those who attempt. Yeah, to... I'm not. I'm not the good man. I'm trying to be, but I'm not the good man. I'm the yeah. anyway. Yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm trying to find a way of saying I'm the bad guy without saying I'm the bad guy. So this is episode is just one solid scene after another. What a finale! This it's brilliant. Really, really so good. good. So good. It's, it's just just pulls out all the stops. Seeing the news of Fisk's escape on the news, uh, Matt wastes no time. Matt meets with Melvin Potter, who has designed a brand new suit for the Vigilante. Flexible red body armour and a helmet that has short horns on the top, paying homage to his devil nickname. Meanwhile, Fisk then calls Vanessa, who is waiting for his arrival at Fisk's helicopter pad to leave New York. Fisk tells Mar- Mariana... <clears throat> I, I didn't say her last name before, sorry. Fisk tells... Vanessa, Mari- Mariana, to leave on the helicopter if he is not there in 20 minutes, fearing that he could still be found and recaptured. The next second, the van is attacked by a projectile through the windscreen, causing the driver to steer out of control, making the van turn over. As Fisk crawls out from the wreckage, he is alarmed to see the masked man in a brand new red outfit with devil horns, 
who tells Fisk that not everyone deserves a happy ending. One of Fisk's henchmen opens fire from inside the wreckage, but Matt takes them down in seconds. Murdoch chases Fisk down into an alley. The suit reveal uh, is just perfect. Nothing fancy, just a shot of a great suit. Yeah. So, some behind-the-scenes info on the Daredevil costume. Costume designer (laughs) Stephanie Meslansky said... We wanted something that looked militaristic and functional, but also dramatic and sexy, adding that it was tricky making it practical. The suit is intended to look like a Kevlar vest, and the black sections are in homage to costume to comic panels where the artist highlights certain areas with red with deeper portions in shadow. I, Talk- I thought that was interesting. That, yeah. yeah, I totally get that. I totally get that here when seeing it. Talking about why the traditional DD does not appear on Murdoch's red suit and other difficulties with adapting the suit to live action, producer and writer Stephen S. DeKnight explained, he got the suit before he got the name. We talked a lot about the DD on the suit, which is one of the more problematic uh, emblems in Herodom. It's a little wonky. His suit in the comics is very difficult to translate to Scream, especially in this world that is grounded in gritty There are some practical difficulties. The Daredevil outfit in the comics, his mask only covers half his nose. It doesn't come all the way down to the tip. We discovered when we were trying to design it that if you didn't bring it all the way down, you could clearly tell it was Charlie. Hmm. Not only did we have the suspension of belief that nobody would know, hey, that's Matt Murdock, we also had the practical problem of it becoming almost impossible when it came to switching in and out our stunt double, so we had to make that adjustment. So, uh, we might as well dive further into the costume. What can you tell us about Daredevil's first proper costume in the comic books, Rob? In the costume, it's 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 yellow and kind of uh, it's yellow and red, brown, black, like we see in the She-Hulk's Disney series. Yes, that's his first yeah. costume. He does not have the, the case. Yeah. he does not have the red to begin with, mm. um, but uh, he only has it for the first six issues. Um, of his of his original series in, in the 1960s, the the artist that co-created and designed um, Daredevil, Bill Everett, um, basically couldn't maintain a schedule on Daredevil. Um, mm. These these right these artists were getting worked to death by Stan Lee. Um, that's the that I've, I've looked into this. The the Marvel method at the time and how Stan put all this stuff together was the artist is responsible for coming up with a huge amount of the story and then submitting it to Stan. And Stan would go, yay or nay. And then when it was done, he'd write in the, um, the, all, the, all the text and dialogue and words and everything. And so it was like you'd get paid for doing, let's say, let's say for every five pages you get paid for, you mm. actually had to write and draw maybe about nine because you were getting a, re- a high rejection rate. Yeah. Oof. So Bill Everett, who's a legendary um, artist and writer, created Namel the Submariner. Hmm. Um, he 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 leaves. He exits and recommends another old nineteen fifties kind of like great artist, Joe Orlando, to take over the book. Orlando takes over and discovers exactly the same. It's a nightmare. It's loads of work. <laughs> it's loads of work. <clears throat> I'm not getting paid like what I think I should. Cause I'm, I'm making. I'm doing eight pages and only five. I'm getting paid for and accepted. So he quits as well. And eventually they find another um, artist called Wallace Wood. Um, Wallace Wood, when, when, when talking about this, essentially basically says, I didn't get any kind of that rejection rate the others had. I don't know if Stan liked my stuff more, but also it was great. I had free reign. I'm creating loads of cool stuff and mm. coming up with stories and things. 
And the idea is, essentially what happened is, he came up with the idea of, this guy's called Daredevil, right? I'm going to make his costume all red. Stan Lee is approving or rejecting pencil copies with no colour. Stan Lee doesn't know that, 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 um, that Wallace Wood has created a new costume. Because the only difference in the costume is, is, the, is, the, is the shading and the colouring. Mm. So Stan Lee doesn't know a new costume has been created in, in issue seven. Because he's approving, he's, he approves the pencil, and then finally yeah. when he gets the coloured version, the artist tells the, uh, the, um, the colourist and the inker what to do. Stan Lee gets his thing and goes, oh, I guess we've completely changed his costume then. And he has to quickly <laughs> write something in that says, I've been working on this new suit in secret. So there we go. Um, it was a, a Wallace Wood decision, and um, Stan Lee kind of didn't really have any choice until the last minute. <laughs> and it stayed ever since. Excellent, excellent. With nowhere to go, Fisk roars at Daredevil, screaming that he wanted to make New York City somewhere something better than it was, making it into something beautiful before Matt stopped his plans. Matt fights an enraged Fisk who puts up a tough fight. After slamming Fisk through a box, Murdoch is lifted over Fisk's shoulder and is violently slammed onto the concrete before Wilson viciously attacks him with a lead pipe. Not letting Fisk beat him, Murdoch tells Fisk that this is his city before fighting back with furious strength and beating Fisk, who asks him, do you think that one man in a silly costume can make any difference? As a bloody Fisk lays unconscious in the alley, Officer Mahoney enters and orders Matt to step down. Realising that the figure in the alley is the devil of Hell's Kitchen, Mahoney lets the hero go, leaving Fisk to be taken into custody. So does F does Daredevil ever take Fisk down like this in the comics? Yeah, so at the end of um I think I, th- I think it's Miller's still at the end of Miller's run I think or maybe it's after. Mm. Um um Fisk uh, has been outed in public although no federal charges are brought against him. He tries to clean up his image buying into a legitimate business. He, he buys a news network. Mm. But it turns out he's actually been manipulated by Hydra into taking <laughs> on one of their companies as a silent partner. Mm. So Matt and Ben are able to leverage and use this these ties to um a terrorist outfit to foul uh, Wilson Fisk's reputation um, and bring um, criminal charges down against him. Mm. Um, federal charges are levied against Wilson Fisk for these ties to Hydra. Um, he, um, in desperation, he tries to uh, he tries to frame Matt for murder. Doesn't go right. Eventually, he gets into a, just a a, 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 a a brawl with Daredevil like this in the middle of the street in the middle of the day, um, and he is you know gets the crap kicked out of him and he crumbles under the weight of these charges as well um he he is arrested and sent down all the criminal the criminal uh, cronies have fled him because of these terrorist connections um his bail is made by a former crony who (laughs) bails fisk out of prison but wants to make him beg beg for his help um Wilson snaps, beats the man to death, knows that will be pinned on him, um, flees into the sewers sewers of New York, nearly mindless, 
absolutely broken by what's happened and it's portrayed as being this false circle from his squalid impoverished upbringing in the gutters of new york Mm -hmm. he climbed all the way to the top and he thought he managed to corrupt everyone and destroy even daredevil but then at the end he falls all the way down literally back into the sewers Um, (laughs) it's a really it's a really um kind of great secular kind of um kind of story there yeah and he comes back of course but that's a good moment Oh, no, I can imagine that. At Fisk's helipad, alone and with no other choice, Vanessa boards the helicopter and leaves the city, but not before putting on the ring that Fisk gave her. The press dubs the vigilante Daredevil, while Foggy and Matt resume their law practice. Fisk gets put into prison, staring at a blank wall like when he was a child. Although Fisk is safely locked away, New York City still remains a dangerous place, with Daredevil continuing to watch over the city. There we have it. Three brilliant episodes of the acclaimed Daredevil series. Will, I'd love to uh, turn things over to you and get your final thoughts on this show. Well, like I've said before, it was great when I first watched it years ago and improves on the second viewing without a doubt. Vastly improves. So much of it, it just it just 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 feels great. I really it really shows that you can do a gritty and realistic superhero movie or TV show without being gritty for gritty's sake. Uh, surprisingly grounded in a lot of places too. A lot of time is spent on pushing the characters forward instead of the spectacle. There are entire episodes with absolutely no action set pieces, just the drama between the main cast. The MCU TV shows have all been great so far, but they do have a high bar to reach with Daredevil Born Again. Uh, thank you for that, Will. Um, our reading list, uh, for if you enjoyed um, what we talked about in this episode, um, I, I really recommend checking out any of the um, Frank Miller Daredevil collections that are out there. Um, specifically, I think Man Without Fear is really, really mm. cool as well. Um, and you can check out you know, uh, Daredevil Born Again. Um, also, I think for for cool early cool early Daredevil stuff that's that's um, about Matt and his dad and things, check out Daredevil Yellow um, by Jeff Loeb, who is the head of TV here in, in in this story we talked about, and and Tim Sale, the same team that that brought you um, Batman: The Long Halloween. If that rings any bells, they did a series of um, of cool Marvel ones, color themed Spider Man Blue and mm. Hulk Gray. And this one is Daredevil Yellow. Um, named after the yellow in the in the original costume, and it's about his early days. It's it's, it's really poignant. Next episode, Will, we're <laughs> heading back to the MCU proper, and we're heading to Wakanda for the very first time on MVM. We'll be doing a deep dive into the billion dollar blockbuster Black Panther. We want to see you right here. That's our next deep dive episode. We can't wait um, for cool bonus. Bonus content, bonus episodes, including Kang Dynasty. Head over to patreon.com slash Marvel vs. Marvel. Marvel vs. Marvel was researched, written, and performed by Rob Holden and Will Preston. The show is produced by Will Preston, and our theme song was composed and performed by Dan Walsh. Head to patreon.com slash Marvel vs. Marvel for awesome bonus content. Marvel vs. Marvel.